Welcome everybody to uh, episode 20 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This episode is 80s comedy and I've called on, you know, I, I don't think I'm uh, praising you too much, but you're absolutely one of my favorite, if not my favorite person to talk movies with. Um, we have rank and review host Larry Parsons here to review six 1980s comedies. There'll be some language and some of it may be coarse language. We will have some spoilers for the six movies that we're reviewing, so just be be aware of that going in. This is also episode 20. Uh, way back in episode 10, I established something which I think will be painful every time I have to come around to it. Every 10 episodes, half the movies that we review have to leave my movie collection. So Larry, just a couple things to mention before uh, we get started here. So since I started the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, you, you've done one episode but you've been the benefactor of three of my discarded movies. That's we true. Had, it's the only time uh, to this point we've had a tie at the bottom. And you, as it happened, you didn't have either of those movies. So you found a nice home for those movies. And you saved a movie that I was so afraid I was going to have to destroy. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Apparently the worst movie of all time. I'm not sure I agree with that, but my guest for that show, Tim Hildebrandt, thought so. And yeah. I had one week from the time it, uh, it dropped the episode to find somebody to take it off uh, off my hands. And fortunately, uh, you were there and you uh, hadn't acquired any movies by uh, Edward uh, D. Wood Jr. So, <laughs> Actually, I have three of them now, but none of them have I paid for. They've all been gifts. They've all I don't know what that says about Edward, but you know, weird, weird. Yeah. Well, yeah. a lot of them is public or public domain. You can watch them on like YouTube. You can see them for free, and like they're kitsch movies. You know, like they're. <laughs> it's an infamous movie, but is Plan Nine from Outer Space something you need to own? Something that you're going to revisit again and again and again? <laughs> I'm nerdy enough that I would. I, I've watched it about three or four times. So, I, and I mean, there's a lot to defend, but I tried my best to defend it on that show. So, I like uh, my movies that are funny on purpose. Yeah, and I guess this wasn't funny on purpose, but I, I like. I guess I like the story of it a little bit more. Um, probably the Tim Burton movie helped me have an affection for Wood himself. I think we're both movie fans. We both can appreciate somebody who has a vision for yeah. making a movie. You yourself have made a feature length film and several other short films and having just that passion for telling a story. And that's what he had, even if it didn't turn out that great. So I just have to admire uh, Ed Wood for that, even though he became a little it bit of a- It is not easy to make a movie. The worst yeah. movie ever made was not an easy movie to make. <laughs> that's the that's the epic tragedy of like a, a, a something that that doesn't go the way you want it but as a from a film standpoint because it's it's a herculean effort and uh you know you hear even directors who will admit you know the guy who directed jaws 4 he knows that's a terrible movie he he takes that right on the chin he's kind of embarrassed about it but you know yeah that happened that happened. I'm sorry. Getting on to 1980s comedy here. So just before we do that, again, I feel like I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about because it's been a little while here. I just want to do another shout out for Rank and Review and, and, and see what's happening. And I especially mentioned the show you did with your kids during COVID as kind of a, a season finale. I thought that was such a cool idea, and I, I enjoy that show quite a bit. I enjoy all your shows, but that one was really, really fun. Well, yeah, it's it's tricky. My kids are, are, are hard guests. <laughs> Not that I'm super hard or difficult. I like to think I'm a very accommodating host generally, but like 
Uh, I wasn't sure if that episode was just going to be for us or not, but like everybody else in the world, we were cooped up in our house and I needed something to keep me and my boys occupied. And like, I also needed some, some podcast recording. I kind of thought in a way that COVID would be helpful for me getting these podcasts recorded, but between technical difficulties and just everybody's life being in upheaval, it's proven like everything else this year to be tough to get episodes done. But no, uh, that turned out really well. And the new season is, I don't know, when it would, when is this episode dropping? This is going to drop in November, so I think you'll be into your new season. I'm, yeah, I'm so we'll, be, we'll be in full swing, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some new shows because I've, I've listened to the show in reverse and I've nearly run out of episodes I haven't heard. So uh, getting some new ones, that's that's going to be that's going to be good. One of the things I don't have kids, but I always sometimes have this this vision that if I had kids, it would be so exciting to share all of these movies that I love. And so there's some points listening to the show where I was kind of like, oh, okay, so maybe not necessarily my kids would be as passionate about movies as I am. Just because to, because yeah. you're their dad there's something about you liking something that makes it fall like a full letter grade to them. Like I learned this with, they might be giants. Like they, uh, the giants have kids albums, like made for kids to enjoy. And I was force feeding the giants on the kids from like a very young age yeah. and they're just over it. They're like, yeah, we get that you like, they might be giants. <laughs> Fine. If you try too hard, you lose in that. <laughs> you have to make, be sneaky about it. You have to make them kind of want it. Yeah. So when it's Owen's idea, when he says he wants to watch Jaws, that's when I get excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that'll be that'll be a good thing. And as they get older too, then maybe you know when they they start to hear about this. And, and unfortunately, I think the idea of movies will be a little bit of a retro thing. And then uh, and then uh, you'll be like the most amazing person because you have all these movies that uh, nobody have thought about in, in years and stuff. Is it a genre movie made before 2020? Because chances are I have it. Yeah, I think you would have it, yeah. Here's where I want to kind of make a, a comparison between, like your show focuses on horror movies, I know, and sometimes it's my fault. You, you, you've deviated from that for a few shows, but the heart of the of rank and review is reviewing and giving some love to horror movies because they don't always get love from uh, critics and mainstream audiences. Or just to taking it seriously, because I, I talk about horror, fantasy, and sci-fi for the most part, but I'll talk about any movie on my show. But I like to focus on those genre movies for exactly what you said. Yes, I realize that the Peter Jackson won an Oscar cumulatively for Lord of the Rings, but typically those are the type of movies that don't get that kind of attention. As much as I think that Black Panther was arguably overrated when it got nominated for Best Picture, part of me was thrilled it was nominated for Best Picture, just that these types of movies are not easy to make. These are like pure spectacle entertainment. And just because the goal is to keep people smiling and eating the popcorn, it's somehow not acknowledged in the same way because you have to actively try to, you know, do something important to win your Oscars, right? Yeah. I think entertainment by itself can be qualified as important enough. And so looking at comedy, I would say to me, the two hardest genres to get right and the most susceptible to criticism are horror and comedy. When they yeah. get them right, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's just absolutely magical. But for every great comedy or every great horror movie, there's just a whole bunch of others that have just been dismissed or thrown by the wayside. I, I chose 
1980s for this one because 1980s was like a, a renaissance for horror, but it was also for comedy, a great time. There were all kinds, the popcorn movie and genre cinema was big in the 80s. And it was kind of the first wave of Saturday Night Live alumni came out with their own movies. And there was just, a, it seemed like a really exciting time. I grew up in that time watching one comedy after another. The six that that uh, been picked for this episode are not really the weird comedies because there's some bizarre stuff out there. I'm thinking <laughs> of the very first episode of yours I ever listened to, you reviewed The Golden Child, the yes. Eddie Murphy movie, which is, we, we aren't really reviewing anything for <laughs> Howard the Duck or The Golden Child or, or, or something like that. But th yeah. there are plenty of those out there too, which are kind of funny. There's so many mad, mad 80s movies. And yeah. uh, also much like the horror genre in the 80s, some of them have so much 80s to them that they become unintentionally hilarious. Like yeah. the 80s somehow overtake the the presentation of the movie. Some yeah. of them age better than others. The, a lot of it is cumulative. You can, you can put up with a little bit of bad hair or a little bit of bad fashion or a little bit of bad soundtrack, but when it all hits together at once, it's just, ooh. <laughs> also, yeah, I think it, the, it, the it, other thing 80s yeah. horror and 80s comedy have in common is wow. that they haven't aged that well. Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was okay to do in an 80s comedy is not okay to do now. A lot of things that was okay to do in an 80s horror movie, if you do it now, you have to be commenting on it. You can't just be a straight exploitation film anymore, it seems, right? Comedy will turn on you, too. This It sort of surprised me. I wanted to mention this. I'm sorry, I don't mean to de derail the introduction, but like, I don't know if it's because it was 2020, because of everything else that's going on. I had a hard time laughing at a lot of these movies, movies that are proven to me, movies that I've seen before that have brought me joy. I mm -hmm. sat a little bit stone-faced, and I, I, I went into this episode with the worry that I'm going to come off super negative. I want to just start out saying that I might be harder on these movies than I mean to, but I authentically like all of the movies that we're going to talk about on this list. I'm yeah. going to go on to say a lot of bad things about them, <laughs> but... I either at one point or to this day liked all of these movies. And it's, I don't know if it's the headspace I'm in or the world we're living in. Comedy has been, it's been a hard pill to take. It, it's hard to laugh just because I, <clears throat> I guess I've been looking at some pretty heavier movies for the show recently. Relief. That this was a little bit of a relief. I, I was able to smile and laugh at, and, and some more than others. And I'll come across in the review. Uh, but that is something I've learned from you, which is really good is that if you have a movie that, you, you know you enjoy or is generally highly praised, it's probably good to to like dig into it and just sort of not just say, oh, this is good, great, and wonderful, like the rest of the world, let's just celebrate it. But then it, a movie that isn't as well known or maybe has a bad reputation, bringing out the good qualities in it and mentioning, you know, it's not all bad, that, that makes you uh, just a more well-rounded critic if, if we want to call ourselves critics or or podcasters I don't know what else you would call it i just to me going into the whole podcast thing is there's just there's so much hate and vitriol and that sucks on the internet that i would bore myself i would bore myself if that would have, like there's the odd review where it has come to that but i fight it i consciously fight that <laughs> if it's a great movie i want to try to find something negative to say and if it's an awful movie i want to find something good to say when, when i've heard you and it is rare that you're reviewing something that you just despise i can hear you trying to fight it trying to find some good and sometimes it's just almost impossible to, to find and you, you do a good job of that so i I think there's 
There's only one movie that I remember that you actually destroyed. Uh, there's yeah. Movie, yeah, there's a movie that you burnt during summer or something that you burnt and recorded you it. Right now. You can hear it on the podcast, uh, rankingreview.ca, by the way. Uh, and that yeah. one, I believe, was my first Terrible Twos episode, but we were reviewing terrible sequels. All right, so I should just mention uh, the uh, six movies that we're reviewing. Uh, so we're starting off with 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Then we're going to be taking a look at 1983's National Lampoon's Vacation. Uh, it wouldn't be a show with Larry if there wasn't a Coen Brothers movie. So we, <laughs> we have Raising Arizona from 1987, followed by Bull Durham from 1988. Then we'll go back to earlier in the 80s with uh, the Blues Brothers, right from 1980. And we're getting off with This Is Spinal Tap from 1984. One thing I am predicting, and maybe I'll be wrong, is that I think we're going to be in different places with a lot of these movies. Um, okay. But I, 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 like you like to say on the show, I, I don't think we're going to get to a point where we're not talking to each other after this one, you know? We can disagree. We don't have to fight. Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. <laughs> Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries before their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson. A man with a mission. Oh, gnarly! Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome! Totally awesome! And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on moods should not drive. Times at Ridgemont High. On the show, I've I've talked about Cameron Crowe. Actually, in my first episode, we reviewed the director's cut. Uh, my my guest Sage Dent and I re reviewed the director's cut of Almost Famous. Famous. The director's cut was a little bit of a slog, I think, but the Almost Famous is a would agree like the theatrical cuts are really exceptional movie. Probably Cameron Crowe's best film. And one, one scene away from perfection, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be. It could be. There are a couple performance things in there that I last time I was a little bit more critical of but before he became a director writer director and with the movie say anything he was a screenwriter he wrote for rolling stone magazine and he did uh this little experiment where he posed as a high school student for a year and then he wrote a novel about what was going on with high school students at the time which was the basis for his screenplay a fast times at ridgemont high and uh then at that point he 
he wasn't greenlit to be the director, but a director I quite like. She hasn't worked a whole lot, to my knowledge, Amy Heckerling. In the 80s, we had Fast Times at Ridgemont High. In the 90s, she made this uh, movie among the many kind of teen comedies at that time called Clueless, which I think has a little bit more to it than uh, than meets the eye. But beyond that, I'm not as sure. I what want she- to say, Jason, I'm not sure of this. I want to say that she did Look Who's Talking. Like, insanely talk- popular talking baby movie in the late 80s. Yeah. I, I hope I'm not misleading you there. <laughs> you know, the TV show she was involved with too, it looks like here, but oh, that's absolutely right. But yeah, very like few and far between with her projects. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a cult classic in many ways, but going through it this time, what I was struck with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it's a life for a year in, in the life of these high school students, but there isn't really much of a story to it. At all. Yeah, at all, no. But it features some of like even to this day some of the most important uh, film actors that we have a cast is of course it was a star making performance for Sean Penn playing uh, Jeff Spicoli and that's where a lot of the advertisement in fact they filmed some scenes after the movie wrapped to feature him a little bit more because must must have been somebody in the studio said he's he's going to be the secret to selling this movie I think kind of underrated in there and maybe it's just because I'm a, a blind follower of Jennifer Jason Lee very young Jennifer Jason Lee. I believe this was her second movie too. It would have been early on. Yeah. I didn't realize until recently her her father was the guy who died on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. That's right. That was probably the same year or a year after that. Phoebe Cates, who kind of gave up acting after a while after she married Kevin Klein, but in the 80s she was a she was a big star. Actor I quite like Ray Walston. We talked about him when we reviewed The Stand. I um, think he gives the performance of the movie, personally. You I think so. And being a public school teacher, even though that type of a teacher doesn't exist anymore really, I, I get a kick out of uh, his perspective and maybe if I had watched this when I was a teenager instead of my first time watching it as an adult I might have been a little bit more identifying with the kids some of the kids he's kind of an adversary but not a villain which is what I really appreciated about it this time Vincent Scavelli plays a a very eccentric science teacher Um, again not out of his his range or his comfort zone but uh, but but he was very good Uh, another Academy Award winner Forrest Whitaker plays the uh, football star. I forgot he was in that. Yeah. Yeah, I, he shows up in movies uh, in a, a show that's coming up soon. I review uh, The Color of Money and I, for some reason, always forget that he appears in The Color of Money as well and it's a great performance. He was, even from a, like a young age, just a solid actor and uh, and he just He's in Bloodsport, man. Eric Stoltz makes appearances in there as uh, Stoner Bud is actually <laughs> his credits. Yeah. Nicholas Cage under the name Nicholas Coppola he actually lied about his age to get into the film and so he wasn't featured as much as he could have been so anthony edwards was later on er stoner bud another another one of the uh, friends for sean penn so there's some other actors i'm a movie nerd and enjoy but talking about but it's quite a good cast and they're young but i think they do a decent job and maybe it's because the acting is so good that i didn't notice in previous viewings until like really critically looking at this that the story is so thin. I think for me, the ancillary, the 90s ancillary to this movie uh, and how I feel about this movie is dazed and confused. 
Mm-hmm. Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused came out in the early 90s and it had two-thirds of Hollywood who were about to break it big. This is the early 80s version of that. And coincidentally, my reaction to the, both of the films are the same. I like both of the films, but I think everybody uh, it seems to like both of them more than I do. I think it's kind of interesting to see these time capsule performances from a lot of people who are about or soon to become like super famous. And I like that it's an edgy, honest teen comedy uh, or dramedy when they were less common. Yes. I think the genre personally was perfected by John Hughes in this era, even though his movies still have their problematic stuff. I was a John Hughes loyalist. I always liked Fast Time, but loved the John Hughes movies. And I don't know if I am just stubborn in that position, but I, I, I sort of stay steadfast there. It's interesting you talk about Cameron Crowe being undercover in high school because he didn't spend his high school years in a high school. He yeah. spent his high school years touring with famous rock bands and covering them for the Rolling Stone magazine. And, you know, it, the inspiration for Almost Famous. So it was interesting that he needed to go undercover to understand the high school experience. But because of that, because he was sort of looking at it the same way, a, I don't know, a field photographer would do a, a nature study in a jungle, like he just didn't understand the environment. A lot of the stuff that maybe was edgier in the early 80s sort of seemed commonplace now, like that they dared to deal with teen sexuality. They address yeah. masturbation. They address, you know, the not the just not the fear of sex, but also the want for it, the joy of it the the pursuit of it mm-hmm. and um they take the kids seriously they're not owned by their parents they're all of these things were great for their time but all of these years later it's just what's expected it's the bare minimum that what we would we would ask from any movie set in a high school setting what yeah. makes the movie work for me is not the comedy it's not the story it's the cast that's sort of the beginning and end of my review yeah. <laughs> i've got a lot more to say but that's where i kind of land i think you know it's hard to recognize what the reagan 1980s were like for for cinema you've addressed it on your show particularly with the censorship around serious like Friday the 13th how they they would cut the heart out of a lot of these movies and so I think it's kind of remarkable that this movie was released as it was and pretty early on like Jennifer Jason Lee I don't know how old she was when she shot this I don't think she was she wasn't a teenager I don't think she was high school age but she she has two scenes where with quite graphic nudity and she did actually look like she was 15 years old uh, in this performance they, uh, they have a slightly more famous nude scene with uh, Phoebe Kate's Phoebe Kate's always seemed a little bit older to me like she seemed yeah. like was in her 20s but Jennifer Jason Leah has always had kind of a young look so you feel a little bit uncomfortable in those scenes but that is kind of effective in a way because they're uncomfortable like these kids are uncomfortable and trying to trying to figure things out something terribly cringy about that awkward sort of adolescent first sort of timid exploration of sexuality it's so awkward and personal to each person that even witnessing it vicariously through the artifice of film is uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. right here, we're seeing the marriage of comedy and horror because like it has this cringe sort of aspect to it. This you almost feels forbidden, like you should look away or you shouldn't be seeing this. But all it's being is honest. I mean, there, there, there's a lot to like. There's some characters that you like, some characters you don't like, but sometimes there's characters that you like for a little bit and then they do something absolutely horrible. Whoops. And mm-hmm. guess what folks, that's high school. I've, I've spent 18 years working in high schools and I don't obviously get to a point where I know what teenagers lives are like outside of school that much but I there's something that feels very 
authentic about about what was done. I think Crow, even though he's an outsider looking in, I think he picked up on at least superficially some things that worked really well. I, I would say a highlight are this this battle throughout the film between Ray Walston as this no-nonsense uh, history teacher and Sean Penn playing uh, the stoner dude who's just Spicoli. Yeah, he gets remembered above everybody else in this film and he breaks every single rule that this teacher has, shows up late, wastes the class's time, orders pizza when there's no food allowed, all, all kinds of things like that. This movie has such a cool payoff to that relationship though because we're used to seeing this in movies, this antagonism between uh, class clown or troublemaker and teacher but what we don't see is on prom night this guy uh rings the doorbell knocks the door on the door and this teacher comes in and talks to this boy and fills in the gaps of time that he wasted in the class to make sure that this kid knows the content of the class before he leaves high school he's and, not gonna let this, this kid escape his net even no. though he's done everything he possibly could to avoid learning he is gonna stick it out to the zero hour to teach this kid whether he wants to be taught or not. I don't know how believable it is, but just to have such a heroic position taken on a teacher in an 80s high school film, I mean, you're not going to find that in John Hughes. You know? No, no, that's that, and I think John Hughes deals with teen sexuality and that kind of thing, but maybe not to the level that this movie does, but also just, yeah, that extra step, like the principal in, in The Breakfast Club is a two-dimensional villain. Throughout. Interesting two-dimensional villain, but he's a two-dimensional villain and they hate the, the students that he he lords over it's not yeah. enough to rule them he has to on some level hate them yeah and that's not what this guy's about at all this guy, my job is to teach these kids and to make sure that they have learned in whatever way i have to do it i i've had the great fortune of working with some people like this to my knowledge nobody that i've worked with has actually gone to a person's house and knocked on the door and you know done something like that's that crossing the line uh, absolutely <laughs> but i admire where he's coming from it's it's a it's a more interesting portrait of a of a teacher i i guess the the comparison movie i would come up with as far as kind of the the darker nature but also somewhat maybe exaggerated but closer to reality than we think is uh, the movie election alexander payne's movie as well which is quite funny but has has its moments there i i think though that thing is so dark i thought it would get made today <laughs> election is just black <laughs> maybe on television but not on not for cinemas. So I think I'm in a place where it was kind of a lower half for me for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I Again, I like this movie, but I would hesitate to say I, I, I love it. There are some some things I can cling on to that are, that are terrific, but I think you nailed it when you said that it's the cast that makes this movie work probably more than anything else. I, I also have to say that it's responsible for some uncomfortableness in my youth. Uh, like I say, most of the... Uh, John Hughes movies that I would watch at the time, The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, uh, you know, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, they were very PG realm. I remember, I don't know what the scenario was, but my mom was in the room while I was watching Fast Times at Richmond High. Oh, wow. And this guy gets gets walked in on while he's masturbating. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like that as a scenario is like gotta be one of the most humiliating things. And I've never seen it addressed in a movie. And the fact that it happened in a movie that I was watching <laughs> with my mom mom was just not cool. <laughs> was not cool. Again, American Pie had a scene sort of like that, but it was like quite different with Jason Biggs and, and the pie.
Sly and uh, Eugene Levy, but it's it bad that it's your dad. But it's so much worse that it's a beautiful girl. <laughs> yes, and and the one he's thinking about at that particular moment. Yeah, so, yeah. it's like that is the horror movie moment of the whole film. And honestly, that 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 uncomfortable sort of feeling that I had brought some negative associations to Fast Times that are maybe not the movie's fault. I, guess. I, I appreciate that it's forward thinking and edgy times, especially for when it was made. But like I say, yeah, it's it's the fact that it has half of Hollywood in it that makes it sort of still relevant in some way today, more so than it's, than it's quote, edgy content. And I, I should mention that performance by Judge Reinhold. Reinhold. Uh, the 80s were the best time for him as uh, the last thing I remember him being in that was really good was he guest starred in an episode of Seinfeld where he was a close talker. You know, he, he had a little bit of a movie career in the 80s and not much since. It's interesting, like he and Phoebe T. Cates are arguably the quote leads of the movie and mm -hmm. they're the two people who really did their careers didn't go past the 80s. Not not so much. They, they I don't know, for whatever reason backed away from Hollywood. But it, it was interesting to see his, his arc is that he starts off his senior year as one of the most important people on in the high school and he loses power step by step by step by losing a relationship and then he gets caught in that masturbation scene and then you know that everybody in the school is going to hear that that happened he gets fired from his job when he loses it on a customer and then he's working at like the, the really crappy restaurant where uh where he's having to do all kinds of humiliating things so it, it's kind of an interesting thing and then there's a bit of a payoff for him at the end in a, a scene towards the end with which uh also involves sean penn in a convenience store I don't know why that made me think of Clerks for some reason. So yeah. James Remar is the guy who robs the store. Fun right. fact. All kinds of interesting guest appearances. They weren't necessarily guest appearances at that time. They were just people getting work. And uh, I think a lot of people were trying to get into this movie and just this, this kind of new wave of young Hollywood, which now is pretty much establishment Hollywood, uh, came out of this film. So it's it's a thumbs up review. Just maybe I will not be foaming at the mouth about it as much as I will be with some of the other movies we talked about. summer when you think vacation think national lampoons vacation see the real america hey underpants hey yellow <laughs> it's friendly I'm okay i'm okay <laughs> don't you want to look at the grand canyon it's educational great and most of all it's fun <laughs> on the picnic basket. But Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Imogene Coca, Randy Quay, John Candy, and Christy Brinkley. Well, are you gonna go for it? This is crazy, this is crazy, this is crazy. Take you for a ride. This summer, when you think vacation, think National Lampoons. Vacation. Better check under the hood. 
it's nostalgia time for uh, your uh, your host Jason Dubray. When I was a kid, my my dad had recorded off of television National Lampoon's Vacation, and we watched it over and over and over again. When I was in the single digit age category, pretty much all throughout my life, not recognizing when I was a kid that National Lampoon's Vacation is a solid R-rated comedy, and there's a lot of stuff that gets cut out uh, for at that time for the network t- TV version. But rightly so. Rightly so. But I can't think of a movie that had more influence on me as far as my sense of humor. I just love this movie. It makes me laugh every time I see it. And this time, quite COVID and everything that's going on, I just had such a great time revisiting National Lampoon's Vacation. The story of the Griswold family and their nightmarish road trip going from Chicago, Illinois to Los Angeles to see Wally World, which is obviously basically Disney World, but it was a Warner Brothers movie, so they weren't going to mention Disney World in there. They take great pains to kind of uh, lampoon Disneyland in there, as well as many other tropes as far as a family vacation. Written by, uh, speaking of great writer-directors who we just mentioned, John Hughes. He wrote the screenplay. He did not direct it. It was directed by Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis did one great movie after another as a director, and of course, his acting in uh, in Ghostbusters. Caddyshack, Stripes, Groundhog Day. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. absolutely legend and I think this solidified he was already a big deal because of his one season on Saturday Night Live that led to a pretty good movie career for a while for Chevy Chase and he had some work before this he had lots of work after National Lampoon's Vacation it seems to me that I might argue that Clark Griswold is the role of his career he's returned to it several times in sequels some of the sequels are not that great some are better of course Christmas Vacation has become an iconic Christmas film. I think probably this one and Christmas Vacation are, are the highlights in the Vacation uh, series. But I like I, to pretend that there's only two Vacation movies. Yeah. <laughs> I, I watch the other ones and I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm just defending it because I have such love for this. This one is my favorite. Some people will say Christmas Vacation is their favorite Vacation movie. This one's really my favorite and maybe technically it's not as polished as some of the other movies we're reviewing, but this is coming strictly from a place of nostalgia, I I would have to say this is my favorite of the six movies we're talking about in this show. So it is not without its problems, but I I, I boldly want to say that this one's my favorite of the six. Well, I can relate to your sort of VHS made-for-TV copy of of the uh, movie. I had a tape that had the uh, uh, second and third Star Treks recorded from television. And when I watched the Star Trek movies for my podcast, I could tell you where the breaks for the commercials would have been. Like, I missed the little blurb that happened (laughs) when, like, I watched the shit out of that for whatever reason. So I get you having a personal attachment to it. And look, I, I love Chevy Chase back in the day, too, and I'm a big defender of John Hughes. I want to say this was originally based off a series of stories published in either National Lampoons or Playboy magazine, or, or maybe both. National Lampoons in the late, I want to say the late 70s or maybe 1980. And, and it, was, in, it was based on an actual vacation that John Hughes had had. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that the idea was he was taking this sort of, the story about his dad uh, and this hellish road trip that they took as a family and extrapolating it for humorous effect. I haven't read the original story, but I'm going to assume it was funny and charming and that's why they made the movie. The interesting thing to me, which I didn't get when I was a kid and watched it, and I watched a lot as a kid like you did, maybe not as much as you, but I was a regular rotation, big fan of the movie, was that it sort of really celebrates that 
that leave it to beavers oh shucks 50s family dad mentality the dad is the head of the household the mom supports the dad they raise two and a half perfect children <laughs> you know he sort of brought that value system into the 80s and i think even at the time it sort of came off as satirical because of how old-fashioned and ah clark griswold was but that made chevy chase's character likable because you know even if he's a little bit naive he's just a guy who loves his family and wants to give them the best vacation possible and that as a motivation is something that you can get behind but if the movie was dated a little bit in early 80s in 2020 it's incredibly dated the saddest thing in the world right now would be a, a movie about clark w griswold in the modern age and how his view of the world is gone it's it's, it's completely obliterated for right or for wrong he, he 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 is an artifact of a lost age and i do think that adds a little bit of melancholy to the thing. I also, like I said at the introduction, I've seen this movie a lot so I know all of the punchlines, so that take it away, and it's just been harder to make me laugh. Uh, other than, honestly, there was I love John Candy so much. Yeah. There was something about how he would bounce between terrified and really happy as that security guard that, that actually did crack me and did make me laugh a few times. Yeah. But for the most part, my feeling was just sort of a comfort of familiarity. Yeah. Uh, with a few sort of sparks, because there's a couple of jokes in this movie that are like really family guy over the line. Uh, I'm sure, I don't know if the TV version had that, um, the, the two girls talking about, oh, I'm, I'm dating and I French kiss. Oh yeah, everybody does that. Sure, everybody does it, but dad says I'm the best at it. Yeah. In, in <laughs> <laughs> the TV version I said, but my science teacher says I'm the best. They just have the father line to get away from the incest joke. Yeah. Right. But like, holy shit. And again, the problematic. I have to call it on it, the sort of racist sequence where they stop it in Detroit. Uh, St. Louis. St. Louis, sorry. Uh, and they get directions from all of these guys and there's just something so specific about the way they talk and how the fact that they get bamboozled and the hubcaps are stolen off of their cars and it's it doesn't play off of the sort of white fear of, you know, the ghetto neighborhood. It's, it's unironic in its parody. Mm -hmm. If you go into this neighborhood as a white family, you will be mugged by black people, is the joke. Yeah, I, I guess I'm maybe defending this and I'm probably completely wrong so I, I don't write letters or write letters in, in 1982 or whenever this was that was fine is the thing yeah uh, and, and, and stuff like that happens in all sorts of wonderful movies I've been watching the Bill and Ted movies with my kids and there's that scene in the first Bill and Ted where they hug each other and then they back off and call each other fags yeah. and it's, that's homophobia that, throughout the that would never happen and like if someone asked me is Bill and Ted a homophobic movie I would say only in that 1988 was a homophobic time. Like, I honestly don't think in its heart that the movie had any hate, but in 1988, that was okay. And in whenever, sorry, I forget the year that the vacation came out, 83. In 1983, nobody questioned this. But if you don't question it watching it in 2020, I, I don't know. I don't know. You, you maybe need to catch up. It doesn't sink the ship for me. There's still It's still a fun, funny movie, but to not acknowledge it, I don't know. If I was to defend it, and it's probably not indefensible, I, I think... Uh, 
on this road trip, absolutely everybody that the Griswolds encounter, everybody is Mark Griswold. And like he, he is he is so stupid in that sequence. And all of the people that he encounters, even though they're portraying a negative, a negative stereotype, they're consistent. They're 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 still way smarter than he is mm. and way more aware of what's going on in the world. And he goes from one place to the other, the bartender in Kansas City, where they're doing the Wyatt Earp uh, place there, and he starts acting like an idiot. That bartender is smarter than he is. Everywhere he goes uh, along the way, I, I see it as partially that. But I, I agree that that scene, if I show that to somebody for the first time in 2020, they're going to have a huge problem with that scene. I think they'll ha- probably have a problem with the Christy Brinkley scenes there, where she's, you know, this supermodel in this car, and she's driving by, and she's kind of... Fantasy, I don't mind her. I think that we're allowed to have our fantasies. It's when he's actually in the pool with her that it kind of undoes all the goodwill that we've had towards Clark. If he truly does value his family, as we've been told and his actions have shown us that he does, what are you doing in the pool with this woman? <laughs> well, it's a re- revenge moment, I guess, because that's the point when he's having uh, ha- he's yeah. had this meltdown in front of his family and he gets into a fight with his wife and he's, I, I don't know, trying to prove, because par- a big part of it, he's going through a midlife crisis. Throughout- be happy with Beverly D'Angelo should be like the overarching message of this movie. She's amazing. Yes, she is. And she's good in the role. And I, I think she is because just knowing, and, and I don't like to bog down a review with this, but everything I understand, Chevy Chase is an incredibly difficult person to work with. No, don't you sugarcoat know? it. He's a monster. He, He's he, just a terrible person. He's hilarious, he, but he is not somebody that you would want to have a drink with. No. Don't ever meet Chevy Chase. Just watch his movies and keep as far out of his private life as you can. <laughs> he, he destroys his own career yeah. in many ways, you know, and he's just burned every bridge along the way. Somehow Beverly D'Angelo must have some sort of magic in her DNA where she can work with him and return to, you know, they've done commercial spots together for as the Griswolds and one movie after another. And uh, I have a theory. She's uh, by all accounts an incredibly nice person. Mm-hmm. And she's also, I don't know if you can tell, because Chevy Chase is very tall, but she's not very big. Mm-hmm. Like she's physically a fairly small person. Yeah. And I think it's the the idea of screaming at this really nice, really small, like there's no optic on that where you're the hero as Chevy yeah. Chase. It just looks like you're a bully screaming at a, ch- at a child almost. Yeah. I think it, she's just one of these people like you couldn't yell at. It'd be like yelling at Angela Lansbury or something. You just, yeah. no, you just know you don't do it. You don't, you don't yell at Beverly D'Angelo. There would be no occasion in which that would be necessary. But yeah, it sucks that, that all of Chevy Chase's performances are haunted by what a asshole he is but there's got to be truth to it there's like almost every director or producer that's ever worked with him who said you know one and done with Chevy Chase (laughs) but there's some people who were not one and done and they they would show up a couple other things I wanted to mention there that John Candy thing you mentioned which is an extended Mm. cameo that wasn't originally part of the movie they had a movie an ending to the movie that was apparently quite did not play well uh, which they actually revamped for Christmas Vacation with a hostage taking type of thing or something like that. Which yeah, he actually well. ends with him going to jail, I think, right? Instead, they, they they went with this other idea and they paid John Candy a million dollars 
uh, for this cameo role, and they thought John Candy was going to bring a lot of positive vibes towards the end of the film, which uh, which it did, and they went for a happier ending in many ways. That's that's for, a gimme for me. John Candy always gets me right in the feels. Yeah. I'm still not over his death. <laughs> like I just love that guy. Uh, even if he's in a bad movie, he's going to bring some warmth and some humor for you. The, the other person I we haven't mentioned yet that I would really like to mention is Randy Quaid. Oh, God. Yeah, from this point on, as Cousin Eddie, I think this is a role that's defined Randy Quaid's career. He was, Unfortunately, he was an Academy, really. Academy Award-nominated actor before this, and he, I mean, his first movie, I believe, was The Last Picture Show, but Cousin Eddie seemed to be a perfect role for Randy Quaid, who I know he's, he's had his problems. Uh, let's say the last several years after this role it was all either crazy eccentric or villain roles for randy quaid and yeah i mean he was just too famous for too long and he ended up losing his mind but the real tragedy about randy quaid is that he is an amazing actor and like i think as funny as i do think he is in this role this is a sleepwalk apart for him <laughs> you know and the fact that like you say this is what he's defined by the guy in the last detail and, and yeah. you know, uh, missouri breaks and all of these great movies that nobody remembers and he's cousin eddie from the vacation series <laughs> for his life really and, you know, I think people when they approach him must think that he's he is cousin eddie i and, and that would weigh on you after a while i think i would say that probably he he's one and it's just because they stretched his rollout because they realized he was such a hit in the first movie for Christmas Vacation they made him a much more featured character and I, I think he was somewhat funnier in that and you're right there, there's just some stuff that kind of now plays as a, a touch too creepy about Cousin Eddie in that whole sequence now I won't lie to you I did snicker at that a bit but I was a little yeah. guilty about it but it, it's just because of how they just jump into it with both feet it's so <laughs> hardcore that I, I it, it kind of shocked me into laughter a little bit and again i don't want to be mean about vacation because this is a movie that i spent a lot of my life loving but like i say comedy kind of slowly turns on you and yeah this one a little bit and with each passing decade i'm gonna guess a little bit more i wanted to because i've been pretty nice to it i just wanted to go to my notes to to mention some weaknesses some of them we've already talked about uh i think that and and then i discovered afterwards that this, this seems like kind of a, a mean criticism the the lady who played aunt edna uh uh, she's it almost looked like a child performer from the 30s where she's kind of looking at the camera and giving these exaggerated facial expressions I hey hey yeah you know this is funny this is funny yeah the, the whole circumstance of what happens to Ed, Edna I, I find absolutely hilarious when they have her her dead body and she's she's on she's on the car roof and they're in that rainstorm and, and they drop her off in the backyard of her son's just house leave her on the porch yeah just all of that is so funny but the actor herself didn't really give that great a performance i read out read later I mean, on we weren't supposed to like her and we didn't like her so i would say it was successful but she does a lot of like odd takes where she's looking at the camera and playing to the camera and just a little bit a little bit touch too cartoonish i think i, I later found out that unfortunately I, I guess she had a stroke at some point when they were filming the movie oh wow so they had some time where they couldn't film with her and then to show up later so i don't know if that maybe affected the performance or something there so maybe that's that's not fair i, well, I I'll counterbalance yours because I've been saying a lot of negative things. Here's there's two things in this movie that I think will always be funny. 
the slow pan through the car of all of the kids being asleep and then the wife being asleep and then Clark being dead asleep at the reel. That will never not be funny. That shit is awesome. And there's also the scene where he takes the shortcut through the desert and he ends up wearing his pants on his head. There's two scenes that I always associate with Chevy Chase, both involving the desert that I just think are priceless. One is in this movie when he like, he makes this vision quest through the desert and that almost dies. His family, everybody else is Everyone else is fine, but he almost dies. And it's counterbalanced. I don't know how recently you've seen Three Amigos. There's a cantina scene in Three Amigos. We're in the middle of the desert. And uh, Steve Martin, he gets two drops out of his canteen. And Martin Short dumps a bunch of sand out of his canteen. And Chevy Chase just takes a bath. He just like glug, 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 pouring water all over himself, spitting it casually away on the ground. Two of the funniest fucking things yeah. the guy ever did. I don't know what, but yeah, those two scenes will always be funny to me. And I, I don't see them aging out of being funny. No. I mean, no. when something works, it, it, it really definitely works. And no. I don't want to talk anybody out of watching Vacation. I would just make sure they understood it hasn't aged as nicely as we would like. I don't know if it's more relatable if you grew up in the you know 70s and 80s, but I, I, I hope it's it's remembered. I'd say it's the second most famous National Lampoon's movie other than Animal House, and I, I think it's a comedy classic. Son, you got a panty on your head. Just drive fast, The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But <laughs> biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. At the time, Ed's little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems. And the answer to all our prayers. He's beautiful. What? Are you kidding? We got us a family here. I want Nathan Jr. back. What's his name? Ed Jr. Hi, Jr. So far, we've just been using Jr. We call him Jr. He's out there somewhere. Hold on, Nathan. We're gonna go pick up daddy. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. <laughs> you busted out of jail. We released Trashaz on our own recognizance. What Double here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. <gasps> we got a child now. Everything's changed. Yeah! Where's Junior? Who the hell are you? I'm a fan. We're absolutely going to get him back. Just ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! And you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona. A comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. If 
I know you, Larry, you are a fan of the Brothers Cohen, as am I. And I guess I, I, I came to be a fan of them through Fargo, which feels like jumping on the train when it was at, like, you know, its uh, fastest pace there. But I think from the beginning, you've been a fan of theirs. And Raising Arizona, I believe, was their second film after Blood Simple. And it's it's probably one that uh, if I was introducing the Coen brothers to just somebody who hadn't seen their movies before, it might be a good introduction place because it is a very likable, broad comedy about a career criminal and a police officer who meet up and fall in love and they're not able to have uh, children of their own. And at the same time, uh, this uh, successful rich gentleman has had uh, a ton of kids and they think well this guy has so many kids he can't keep track of all of them so what if we just take one to to be our own and and to love because we both are will be great parents Besides, and they got more than they can handle and yeah they got more than they can handle and they essentially like kidnap a child and try to raise it as their own there are complications a couple of uh a couple of the um nicholas cage's prison buddies escape in a rather fun and cartoonish way they uh uh, and they decide to land in their trailer park home at the same time as this baby has shown up. And there's also this rather strange post-apocalyptic fellow on a bike played by uh, Randall Cobb. He's in, and he ends up being hired to find this baby by uh, this uh, this gentleman who recognizes that one of the kids, he can't quite identify which kid was taken for sure. Because Junior, I think. They're all labeled in their cribs, but they all get out in a hilarious sequence where... Uh, Nicholas Cage tries to take this baby being the master criminal that he is and it uh, it's it's a near disaster. I have to confess I'm not crazy about movies about babies, about diapers, about about things like this, basically about that aspect of parenthood. Uh, it takes a lot for me to like something, never mind love something which deals with this theme, but uh, in the hands of the Coen brothers, I love Raising Arizona. It is so much fun. I wouldn't say it's among my favorite uh, I tend to go for these, the darker comedies, but I, I think I could show this to anybody. And, and unless they, if they have a heartbeat, they're going to smile at some point in this movie because it is so such a crowd pleaser as far as being a, a, a film which is so it's weird, no doubt it's weird, but it is so much fun. And Nicolas Cage, probably one of his best performances. Holly Hunter uh, playing his wife, she's so good. I, I'm, I'm disappointed that she doesn't do more Coen Brothers films. I think it's this and Oh Brother Where Art Thou are the only two. She's really good friends with Francis McDormand. I guess they roomed together when they were in Yale drama. But here in the lead with Cage, they work really well together, as, as well as a whole series of interesting supporting performances. Probably none more consistent in Coen Brothers films than John Goodman. I think this was about the time that Roseanne was coming out. But I, I don't think he was John Goodman as we know him when Raising Arizona came out. This this and no, Roseanne. The Coen, Brothers, the Coen Brothers saw John Goodman before anyone else. Give them credit for that, I think. So I think I know what, how you feel about it, but... But here's your chance, I, and I have heard you review this movie on your uh, Coen Brothers tribute shows. I, I love Any Raising Arizona. Look, like, I, it's not fair. It's not fair. Twice I've been on your show, twice we've had a Coen Brothers movie. And three, actually, in two episodes, so. That's right. There's uh, the very first day I, I started my movie collection, which continues to this day, while there's still a physical medium to collect. Yeah. I bought two VHS tapes at a Tramps movie sale, oh, dating cool. myself in Saskatoon. One of them was Tremors. The other one was Miller's Crossing. Those are the two first movies I bought for my personal collection. So my love for the Coen brothers goes back and goes deep. 
And um, I love raising Arizona. I, and, and it's another one that goes back to my childhood. I might like it more than everybody else. I might be more enthused than everybody else. But I will just say, I think the two things that I think make this movie brilliant and that I think makes it bump it above most of the movies we're going to be talking about this list, if not all of them, is that despite the fact that the premise of the movie is two redneck hayseeds, <laughs> stereotypes really, Mm -hmm. kidnap a baby because they can't have one on their own and we love them yeah. that's established in the first 10 minutes that they have this elaborate pre-credit sequence at the beginning of the movie introduces us to all the main players introduces us to why they, they uh how they fell in love why they can't have kids why they can't adopt kids and why this is the best possible solution for them and although it's ludicrous it's undeniably ludicrous we're completely on board at least for i am by the time that first, you know, yodeling music cue hits up yes. and we see the theme for Raising Arizona. I am already well in love with the two main characters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm on board. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. And what's yeah. going to happen? What are they What are they going to get themselves into by stealing this kid? And the other magical element, I mean, we can talk about the familiarities. Like in every Coen Brothers movie, you're going to have dream sequences and really elaborate, crazy sort of Sam Raimi-esque shots. But the idea that everybody that comes into contact with Nathan Jr., if you spend more than a few minutes with Nathan Jr., you just fall in love with this baby. This baby has some sort of magical property that no matter who you are, you just want to look after this baby. Like even William Forsythe and John Goodman, they go from kidnapping the baby to exchange it for money or sell it to this human trafficker for all they know to he's one of the boys. They're going to take care of him forever over one car ride. Yes, and that's right. something so sweet that I don't think any other Coen brothers, even Oh Brother Where Art Thou, have managed that level of sweetness. A mm -hmm. lot of times people will talk about the Coen brothers, you know, Fargo being the most famous case of it, representing sort of the, the best and worst of America specifically. Yeah. And with their best, I'm talking about sort of the most optimistic, crazy... Hudsucker proxy raising Arizona areas and the worst, you know, your no country for old men, Anton Chigurh's and your sort of darkness, the serious man. Uh, yeah. Fargo probably possesses both of them the best, but it's interesting how complete that is even in raising Arizona. Randall Tex Cobb is kind of an Anton Chigurh figure. Like there's something mythic about his presence. <laughs> There's yeah. something epic about how evil he is. They're accomplishing great things. Second unit, all being shot by Sam Raimi. This is a continuing collaboration they've had for a while. They made this movie Crime Wave together uh, very deeply, which was not very successful. If you ever want to see an interesting primitive Coen Brothers Sam Raimi work, check that out. There's just nothing not fascinating about the movie. And I know I've rambled on, but I just want to say one more thing. Yes, I've seen this movie dozens of times, and yes, I've reviewed it for the podcast. And yes, I could have done this episode of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show and not bothered to rewatch Raising Arizona. But I projected Raising Arizona big on the screen and watched it for, I don't know, the 18th time and have no regrets. Yeah. I fucking love Raising Arizona. And you don't have to love it as much as I do, but if, if you really think it sucks, if you really don't like Raising Arizona, it kind of makes me kind of tilt my head and go, really? You don't see any value, really? You didn't find it charming? There wasn't just, there wasn't something about this movie. Yeah. And you, you pick the selection, 80s comedy. It is an 80s comedy, but it doesn't 
feel 80s. It feels Cohen. I know yeah. I kiss my ass so completely all of the time, but this is why I think they're the greatest living filmmakers. Even making a, a rollicking, you know, catch all the bases, broad comedy in the heart of the 80s, they're still distinctly the Cohen brothers. Yeah. And for this to be like established, I think as their at least their second their second film and their first one being Blood Simple, which is like like where do you go from? And yet they've mm-hmm. talked themselves time and time and time again. I'm looking forward to uh, Macbeth next year uh, with Denzel Washington. I mean, that's that's going to be whatever they do with Shakespeare. It's going to be the most original thing you've ever seen with Shakespeare. Uh, I go in confident. I go in confident. Like in any Coen Brothers movie. Like like I've said before. I said it on my podcast. I think the Lady Killers is the worst movie they've made. I don't think that Lady Killers is a bad movie. I just think I I hold it to a higher bar than 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 I do for like Coen Brothers. But they haven't made a bad movie, as far as I'm concerned. That they've made 18 movies. Yeah, they're getting there, and I don't know if Macbeth's number 19, but it's yeah. There's there's one or two where my first time watching it, I didn't appreciate it, and I would revisit it. Oh, Brothers, one of those ones where just for some reason I it hit me on the wrong day when I saw it in movie theaters, and I thought this is just it. yeah, it's ridiculously over the top. I did I didn't I wasn't as thrilled with Clooney's performance. All the stuff it got praised for when I. I watched it with my family years later, and I was like, "What? What was I on? What? What, what was wrong with me that day that I didn't enjoy?" It? Maybe it's not my favorite of their their movies, but I I really you know you have to appreciate what they do. And well, uh, not everybody enjoys it. Uh, apparently, Nick Cage wasn't a big fan of being on their set. Gabriel Byrne wasn't a big fan of being on their set. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they are loyalists to their script. They believe in their script. And to be fair to Nick Cage, in the, the mid-80s, they hadn't earned that. They weren't the Cohen brothers yet, but they were confident, you know? So he was always coming to them saying, well, what if we do this? Wouldn't it be cool if I did this? Mm-hmm. And their response was inevitably, what if we do what's on the script? Yes. What if we do what's on the page? What if we do what we meticulously planned on shooting today? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I and uh, like Gabriel Byrne and uh, Nicolas Cage are very different actors. But I, I think with in, in, like the early days of Nicolas Cage, I actually thought he's one of the greatest living actors. He just went through a streak of movies for years. Raising Arizona would be among them. Uh, Moonstruck was around the same time. But when I hear the stories of some of the stuff that he tried to pull, and there were directors like Norman Jewison that, talked him down from the ledge when he came in with some ridiculous over-the-top Italian accent or something for his his uh, performance uh, in uh, in Moonstruck. And he, he let him try it, apparently, but then he kind of went, yeah, Nick, it's not working. Let's let's tone it down a bit. Yeah. I think the last several years, nobody is telling Nick Cage to tone down Nick Cage, and he is completely off the leash. And if he'd been allowed to in like the late '80s, throughout the '90s, we, we may have not been talking. Or I may not have been taking him as seriously as uh, as I did up until his Oscar-winning performance in Leaving Las Vegas, but. I, I, I won't take anything away from this performance, by the way. H.I. McDonough is solid. He's very good. But I think having Holly Hunter there, like she has her moment. Like she's, she's very much the, uh, what's the term now? Like I, I always use the term straight man, which is politically incorrect. But she, she, she's the one who's who's quite serious while the more outlandish character gets to do kind of the fun stuff. And um, well, is she though? Because this kidnapping thing is very much her idea. H.I. may be the criminal, but like she wants a baby. And when she, he comes out of there empty-handed, she is not going to let him back in the car. Don't you come back here without a baby? <laughs> like, 
But she's she's smarter than he is, mm-hmm. and she's more pragmatic than he is. Even even if she's gone into this kind of criminal state of mind to be able to to do this, but uh, like I, I think she potentially in another actor's hands, she gets totally swallowed up by this story and by how how Cage's performance and several of the other colorful characters. But she holds her own and gives a, a really really strong performance in this movie. And I, I'm a Holly Hunter fan, and well, she's um, just raw charm. I just love the way she talks out of the corner of her mouth, and she's just yeah. got there's something just warm about her. You just yeah. want to like her, even when she plays mean characters like in Oh Brother. There's yeah. still something about her. Yeah, and it's still in there, like she kind of plays the wife in that movie too, but she goes beyond playing an archetype. There's just something something there about Holly Hunter. So really like the cast, of course, solid screenplay, well-directed. I love the use of repetition. The Coen brothers do this a lot. Like every time Cage gets picked up trying to do some some stupid robbery and he ends up in this through the same, the same situation, the same jail cell, the same uh, group therapy in prison and, and they, they use that so well like that opening sequence is a masterpiece it's it's one of the longer especially at that time it was one of the longer openings to a film there, there have been some other movies since then uh Famously, Nicolas Cage was in one of them. I think uh, the Leaving Las Vegas credits appeared half an hour into the movie. But you're right. By the time we get to the title sequence, we're in. I mean, this movie could be five hours long. We want to spend time with these people. We want to spend time with them after the movie's done. It is is such a fun movie, and I I, I really do think everybody should check it out. I want to talk just quickly about Trey Wilson. He's also in, actually, strangely, I'd forgotten. He's in Bull Durham. He was going to do star in Miller's Crossing. He he was going to play the part that Albert Finney ended up playing, um, but he died. He had some sort of stroke or embolism, fell over dead. This settled with Albert Finney when they did Miller's Crossing. But I would like uh, it was interesting seeing him in, in Bull Durham because the Cohen brothers were a believer in him. Like if he hadn't died, he might have been another Cohen regular. And uh, I think he does great supporting work in this movie. It's it could be in another in another movie a thankless part. We're not we we can't like him too much because you know his son has been kidnapped and you know if we really accept the stakes of this kidnapping, it stops being funny right away. But he also has to be likable enough so at the end, when he turns out to be a really decent guy and is understanding to high and, you know, it doesn't come out of the clear blue sky. Yeah. I think that there's a little bit more to that role and more balance to it than than maybe on surface is obvious. And it gets forgotten about in this cast of because I could say yeah, John Goodman is amazing in the movie, and he is fucking amazing in the movie. But at this point, I, I'm almost willing to say that just goes without saying. John yeah. Goodman is just he's going to deliver the goods, even if the movie is bad. John Goodman's going to be good in it. He had an in. An, a streak a few years ago where he was if you had him in your movie then your movie could win the best picture of the year three years in a row he was in a, a movie that won best picture and uh uh yet he's a guy who never gets nominated i think he probably should have been nominated for barton fink in the mix of all the coen brothers movies and he he's I, I, it's funny he's we, we've known him for so long but i still think he's underrated you know yeah yeah and he could do he could do uh serious roles he could do scary roles he could do comedy he, he's a he's a true actor and he's somebody you can always count on so so big fan of that and yeah the centerpiece action sequence over the the diaper sequence as we call it when yeah. hi stops to get some diapers and it, it leads into an incredible chase sequence 
it's like the centerpiece of the movie. I swear I could watch that on repeat, man. I just think yeah. it's just great. They establish these great comedic sequences. You see Sam Raimi's influence. It's so funny, like Absolutely. Sam and his Evil Dead type of photography. And I, I and I know Joe Cohen was involved with the early days of the Evil Dead movies. And you're watching a a, a broad comedy, but the same techniques as in a, a dark, if comedic horror movie are being used uh, and they're being used really really well in both movies and I'm totally buying it so I guess the most 80s thing for me is the Randall Tex Cobb character just right. maybe design of him that post-apocalyptic characters in the Mad Max movies and and, and things like that but you find him a little bit hard to understand I don't know if he was talking through a broken nose in that movie but there's something strange about the way his dialogue comes out it's the it's a performance thing and I usually like Randall Tex Cobb but there's a few times where I'm losing some of that juicy Cohen dialogue to his wheeze. <laughs> it's better when he doesn't speak. Almost if he'd been a completely mute character, that would have been just, you know, I, I guess we, we have to have him talk at some point. But, but yeah, it's, I love uh, that fight between he and H.I. at the end. Yeah. Like Nicolas Cage is just getting the living hell beat out of him. But he's got this weird, goofy smile on the face while it's going on. This to his character, I think I said this when we talked about it in my podcast, this is the best case scenario. Right now, the only person getting hurt is him. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he's fine. His wife yeah. is okay. The kid is okay. <laughs> like He's taking so, it to the family, yeah. The only offensive maneuver he gets, at, other than hitting him off the bike with the board in that whole fight, is at one point he manages to spit a tooth into Randall Tex Cobb's face. That's right. That's Just right. brutal. And there's something about like Cage's hair, too, in the movie. It, is, it was a character unto itself. I mean, it, yeah, I, I think we're both fans. I, I guess I probably should do what I'm supposed to be doing and come up with something negative to say from my note. Early in the movie there's a joke where one of the prisoners uh, says that he's feeling trapped in a woman's body and yeah. he's got the minstrel, minstrel cramps real hard. It yeah. just seemed like the one line of the whole movie that seemed too lowbrow to be in a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. But it's literally one line and as far as I'm concerned it's the rat on the windowsill in The Departed. It's like the one thing in the movie that I could do without. <laughs> but like... It, I, it's hard. It's hard. This isn't, you're right, even one of the best Coen Brothers movies, but I, you, you're going to have to bully me into saying talking shit about this. Yeah. I just can't do no. it. No, I, I, I think we, we've kind of covered... In some ways, there's the one performance I have a little bit of a problem with with Randall Tex Cobb, but I think you've kind of covered that already. I didn't have many negative notes about this. This is, this is a, a, a tremendous movie, you know. Um, and probably I could say a better made movie than Vacation. It just doesn't have that sentimental history that I have with Vacation. What do you believe in there? Well, I believe in the small of a woman's back, the hanging curveball, high fiber, good scotch, and I believe in long, slow, deep, soft, wet kisses that last for three days. Come on. Who are you? I'm the player to be named later. I love winning, man. You hear what I'm saying? like better than losing these are the ground rules i hook up with one guy a season usually takes a couple weeks to pick the guy kind of my own spring training it's cold in here you think dwight gooden leaves his socks on god the sucker teed off in that like he knew i was gonna throw a fastball he did know i told him you got the world by the I want you to wear these when you're pitching on the road. 
They're garters. Rose goes in the front, big guy. Love is a lot like baseball. It's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. No problem, no problem, no problem. Kevin Costner. Get a hit, Crash. Shut up. Susan Sarandon. Have you ever been tied up in bed? Tim Robbins. I'm too old for this. Bull Durham. I had a Kevin Costner episode, uh, and I talked about Field of Dreams, and I talked about this marriage of I'm a huge baseball fan, so baseball and movies together are usually a winner for me. It was interesting because I got pretty hard on Field of Dreams in my review. Revisiting it, I saw more problems than I think I saw when when I when I first it's watched. Sentimental. Yeah, sorry, it's pretty um, sentimental. Pretty sentimental uh, movie, and sometimes some things just simply don't make sense in the climax, even though it was a Best Picture nominated film. Bull Durham is is one that I didn't have as much of a love for when I was younger. I think I didn't necessarily understand it as much. Uh, maybe because it was a little bit more, huh, you could say more of a realistic look at baseball players who were my heroes at the time. And it kind of brings them down to earth a little bit in some places. So maybe my first, maybe I was a little bit too young to see it the first time I saw it. And this time I was thinking, okay, where am I at with this? Is this going to be one that's that's aged poorly and I'm going to be going back kind of like the Field of Dreams review and saying, well, it's it, it's a very respected film, but I, you know, I, I don't like it as much as I used to. Uh, and it's trying hard to be as critical as possible. But watching Bull Durham, I still really, really enjoy this movie. And I think I now at a point where I like it quite a bit more than Field of Dreams. And it's just growing up and, and now being in my 40s watching this movie as opposed to being 12 years old and seeing those movies. Just kind of a different time of life. I think the success of Bull Durham can be attributed to a few folks, but uh, the main person I would give credit to is Ron Shelton, who, a writer-director, has specialized a lot in sports films. I'd say his two most famous movies are Bull Durham and White Men Can't Jump. And no, he was a minor league baseball you don't count Tim Cappelman at all? Uh, I'm sorry. I like Tim Cup a lot. I just don't think a lot of people remember Tim Tin Cup as much as they remember these other ones. So yeah. I like Tin Cup. I, I I I like it quite a bit. Somehow it's a less edgy movie than than the other two. Like the satire is less strong. Ron Shelton was actually a minor league baseball player and kind of in some weird way, like Cameron Crowe doing with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He wrote about something that he knew for this film, and the, like the whole tagline on it is the two uh, biggest pastimes in America are baseball and sex and this movie combined both. If I was to give some credit this was uh, a big role for Tim Robbins kind of announced his presence as a very important actor. Uh, I don't think I appreciated what he was doing in this movie as much when I first saw it as I do now. Big props to Susan Sarandon and I am a Kevin Costner defender here so I think that's where we're going to get into uh, different territory here. I think he's very good in westerns he's very good when he in these sports movies Movies where he plays these athletes or these over-the-hill athletes. He plays Crash Davis, who's brought in as this kind of uh, last days of his baseball career for this minor league team, the Durham Bulls, to work with this talented but out-of-control pitcher played by Tim Robbins, who just has this powerful arm but doesn't know how to control it, is throwing the ball all over the place. And Susan Sarandon complicates things because she is this, this fan of the baseball team in this small town, and she chooses one player to be her project 
every year and pretty much moves in, moves this young man in, teaches him life lessons, but also starts a one season sexual relationship. And she is between the two men. She chooses Tim Robbins because Costner as Crush Davis is he's like, it's between us. Like uh, if, if it's between us, you have no taste and I'm taking myself out of this. Also, and- I don't think you're underplaying what an asshole the Tim Robbins character really he is. is. He is a giant. It would be to, to have someone select, like, tell you that they chose this guy over you would be considered a slap in the face. Yeah. I don't think that's a character weakness. I think no. I think that would be a fair response. It, it is because Crash Davis is an educated, well-rounded person who's seen it all. Like he and he is a more natural match for Susan Sarandon's character as the arc of the film uh, goes. I, I think because it isn't terribly sentimental, it is solidly an R-rated comedy. And and it has three really strong performances and a few other interesting uh, characters. Uh, it it works really well as a well-rounded movie. I'm not sure it's like a ha 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 every uh, every five minutes like Vacation is, or even to a certain degree Raising Arizona. But I, I think it's a it's a very strong movie, and it's almost an anti-romantic comedy. It still has the tropes of a romantic comedy, and it has the tropes of a baseball or a baseball or a sports film. The way that things work out, it doesn't, it isn't like, you know, this is our tough season and it comes up to like uh, the final game with some underdog team, like you would see in a cliche-ish sports movie. And the way that the love story is handled is handled quite differently than you would see in the traditional rom-com. So I think he found a way to kind of deconstruct those, put them together in an effective way. And it was a strong film for 1988, but I'm happy to hear your opinion, which might be more than mine. <laughs> well, look, I don't know if I've been making a, a frowny face, but like <laughs> you have a couple things helping you to get through Bull Durham. Yeah. You love baseball and you're a big Kevin Costner fan. Yeah. I do not love baseball and Kevin Costner I find frustrating. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Kevin Costner sucks. But I will say for every great performance he's given, he's given three completely dead-eyed, not-there performances, as far as I'm concerned. Um, he seems more invested in this movie because he's got sort of a character to play. But when it when it came out, I remember this being the movie that everybody liked more than I did. And, and I think I agree with you. I was a little bit young for it. It skewed much more adult. So it didn't have the same wacky appeal of something as broad as a vacation movie would. Yeah. It was a little bit over my head. So maybe I attributed to that. So when I revisit it, I thought, I'm going to like it more. And I liked it less. It went from okay to fine. It went from okay to fine, as far as I'm concerned. But again, I don't have the fascination with baseball, and I connect to zero of the three characters. I could tell you that they were good performances, but one at a time. The Kevin Costner character spends his life playing baseball. It may not be the pro game that he wants to do, but he makes a living playing a game that he loves. And he's Kevin Costner. He's going to get laid. He's going to have a baseline sort of okay. He's going to be fine. He doesn't have any huge mountain to climb other than he used to be a contender and he isn't anymore. Susan Sarandon, as much as it's a great performance and she's a, quote, powerful character and she's making her own decisions, is dedicating her life to making men's lives better. A different mm-hmm. one every year, but that's who she is. She's Penny Lane taken to a ridiculous degree. Yeah. And I can only get away with Penny Lane once. And that movie was almost famous. So I like Susan Sarandon, but I somewhere, I don't know if it's not even credible. I'm sure there are fans who are like this, but 
I don't know that this is something to necessarily be celebrated as far as I'm concerned, or that maybe maybe we should be more, if not critical of her, maybe she should be more aware of herself. Like, if you know every year you're going to have a different boyfriend, you have no long-term plans, right? Maybe Maybe she's got some flaws, you know? I think at the time it was just a strong, free-thinking character. Mm -hmm. And then we have Tim Robbins, who I agree. I think he gives my favorite performance because it's the most fun performance of the three. Mm -hmm. But it seems like he was born with this great arm. He's inherently talented, and he takes it for granted. Yeah. And he's shitty to everybody, no matter how much they try to help him. So between those three characters, I don't have a lot to cheer for, Jason. I just don't. And because I don't care about baseball... And because like it's going to be fine for Kevin Costner and he and Susan Sarandon are going to inevitably end up together, I didn't feel any conflict or weight or energy to the movie. I mm -hmm. stared at it. There's a couple of funny lines. There's a couple of good character beats. And I get why this excited people about Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. This was about when they were about to make their meteoric rise through Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And they earned that with this movie. Yeah. But Ron Shelton will do the same movie over and over and over again based on the success of Bull Durham. And if you ask me, he specializes in sports movies about unlikable characters. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. I, I, I You're not wrong. And I think you're describing my initial reaction when I was whatever i remember i because i was a baseball fan and i traveled to montreal to see the expos with my uncle and we were staying at his uh i think it was his sister's place in montreal and they had a vhs copy of bull durham and like oh you're like a baseball fan let's watch this but they'd kind of forgotten about some some of the sex, sex stuff in there and I, I i didn't get the whole picture because i think they started doing the adult thing of fast forwarding or is this inappropriate <laughs> in the room type of thing and it was later I, I saw the, the whole arc of the film but what struck me about it is at a time when I, I saw people like Costner would always play a hero role and all these baseball players I was enamored with and saw them as as gods right this movie brought them down to earth as human beings and in some cases very arrogant human beings sometimes they're about themselves spoiled um, entitled human beings <laughs> and entitled as well because especially Tim Robbins that he's been given this gift and he doesn't appreciate it uh so I, I i've never completely liked his character as much i guess maybe maybe i i do cling a little bit i like costner and i like that this is not you know this is the you know the the crazy dad in field of dreams or or he's the hero of the film or something like that as as much that this was a, a bit of a darker character for him to play and a little bit more unsettled i i think i the sarandon i think gives the best performance of the three and in 1980 now it looks bad in the way you're describing it and Susan Sarandon's been a lifelong feminist. I, I, I know that. I think what she was attracted to with this role is who who is the one who has the power? Who is the sexual aggressor? Who controls it? Like Tim Robbins wants to have sex and she she ties him up and he thinks it's going to be some really amazing, sexy thing. And then she starts to read poetry to him and start talking about these big ideas that he's too, too dumb to understand. There, there's something brilliant about that, which I don't think was being explored at that time in, uh, in Hollywood in the 1980s. If I'm coming off like some social justice warrior bullshit, this is not what I'm really doing. I don't care. I get what they're going for. I just, I, I see a lot of flaws and a, a person who really would act this way, who would so dedicate themselves to other people and a new person every year. I would sort yeah. of think there was something within them that was needing looked at that would need to be acknowledged here. Uh, this seems to be a heroic part of her personality and uh, it makes her strong but it also I think I think it would be even stronger to show that maybe there's something vulnerable about this I 
I think, but I, I do think that she is kind of a, a sad character. I, I don't think she's somebody who has it all together or the film is trying to show that. And in particular, when she's not getting her way, because it, it really is a battle for uh, the Tim Robbins character who's influencing him. Crash Davis, who's saying like, when you're playing baseball, when you're hot, you you can't have sex. You can't be thinking about women or, or any of that stuff. That's going to get in your head and that's going to screw you up. And and uh, and he starts listening to Crash more and, and she she's just having no life influencing these men and she's always had this power and then she's just what's my identity anymore she's stuck at a bit of this crisis point uh, I think like towards the end of the movie and it's I don't think it's very it's Pollyanna I'm making it sound a little bit Pollyanna mm-hmm. but Crash is retired from baseball she's retiring from uh, being the Penny Lane as you described her of this uh, Durham Bulls team and they've really kind of found each other and they're better suited to each other than anything else and that she's not going to be doing this anymore that they're going to now carry on with their lives. Seems like the movie doesn't even pretend there's conflict in that. It's like this is her one last hurrah before she settles down with Kevin Costner. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's something coldly calculated about that. I think Ron Shelton does, I, I get why people appreciate it because it's more layered and nuanced than sort of like a crowd-pleasing yeah. sports movie like Hoosiers. It, it yeah. might have its appeal, but it's also, you know, pretty contrived in a lot of ways. And he seems to consciously avoid that. But I think he arguably overcorrects a lot of the time. I think I would have liked White Men Can't Jump a lot more if I liked Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes' characters a lot yeah. more. They were so shitty to each other that I ended up not liking either of them by the end of the movie. And whether or not that was the point of the exercise, it made me like the movie a little bit less. And I don't know if that's a comment on on male relationships in the sports environment where they, they do yeah. talk that way to each other and talk each other down and smack talk. I, I don't. I'm not like I'm not an athlete in any way, shape, or form, and an appreciator of baseball mostly. I will watch sports, but I, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm not an athlete. I, I've never understood that mentality, but I think he's trying. Movies have always been my sports. I've been bullied by too many jocks to to really even pretend to like sports. Yeah. And like, uh, I, I just, it's not my thing. And, and I will take that. Like that, that's a knock against it. And uh, I've always been mystified by the popularity, like I said, of, of Costner. You, I was listening to your podcast earlier today. You were talking about uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I was like, I remember that. That was the big selling point of the movie. Not Alan Rickman, not the, you know, that they're doing a nouveau Robin Hood. Yeah. Kevin Costner. And watching that movie today, he is the worst thing about that movie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's brutal. And like... He made Dances with Wolves a Best Picture winner, which is like already so, you know, it's it should have been the last of the great white savior movies. Unfortunately, Avatar exists. Uh, and then every now and then I'll be shocked. Like I'll watch JFK or uh, Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World and I'll think, yeah. Jesus, this guy's awesome. What happened? <laughs> so... I have this like frustration with Kevin Costner and there are scenes in this movie in Bull Durham where he lights up, but it's not, it's not completely there for me. It's an, it's, it's a, it's an easy role for him. He's just a, a guy who everything has more or less worked out for and everything's going to continue more or less working out for. But he, he much like Susan Sarandon has a bit of an empty existence. I mean, that's all. He's not as happy as he should be considering. No, he's, I mean, not everybody gets to play professional baseball for the better part of their adult lives. And, and he, yeah, he's, he's just kind of a miserable person, but that's all he has in his life. And uh, some people spend their life dreaming of playing in the pros and never do it. He did yeah, it. He did it. And and he gets his home run record and and all of that, but uh, but yeah, I, 
and I just feel like Ron Shelton's aware of the bullying nature of jocks. And so this is kind of showing people the flaws, very flawed human beings. And they are sometimes miserable human beings. And maybe we shouldn't be celebrating them and treating them like gods because they are, this is how they act. And maybe that's why his protagonists are kind of unlikable people. But uh, I think he just overpours. I think, especially in a rom com environment, at least with these movies that advertise themselves to be, the sweet and the sour needs to be balanced and the reason i brought up tin cup is that to me is the movie where it happened yeah he, that's a you're right that's a sweeter movie maybe there's, there's something maybe. harsh about them there's something that's so ugly about his characters that it's hard to cheer for them and so the the payoff isn't as as strong to me and I, the only thing I maybe care less about than baseball is fucking golf, dude. <laughs> and Tin Cup about golf. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing that I even watched that movie, really. And, yeah. and even then, I'm not enthusiastic. This isn't me pounding my stick saying, see Tin Cup. But people still talk about White Man Can't Jump and Bull Durham. And like for me, I think that Tin Cup is the better of those movies. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm coming off as the negative Nelly in this 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 review. I think you're playing point to the good actors. And there's good acting in it. It's a well intentioned warm movie it's largely not for me jason i think might be a large part of the problem this is not for me ergo I, it didn't connect with me ergo it's not going to rank particularly high i know it's not ranking review but you know what i mean yeah <laughs> it's not I know that yeah i i just to, again out of fairness uh I, I do want to mention some things that i saw as weaknesses i, I mentioned that you know I, I think that tim robbins character he's a bit of a clown and he's an unlikable clown as we as we said works for the comedy but i'm not sure works me cheering for him moving into his major league career later in the film we should be able to like him at least a little bit i don't know you know again 1988 there's some pretty homophobic remarks in in the film the script keeping with jock culture i think that's appropriate almost it's real yeah uh and i'm not endorsing it but that's how they would talk and you are also right i mean i don't think there's any doubt that when you have at that time robbins wasn't a known commodity but costner was sarandon was that they are the leads and they're likely going to end up together at the end of the film in some way shape or form which that part feels a bit formulaic it it would have been interesting if they had gone their separate ways and that was just the end of the film but wouldn't it imagine like she spent her life calling people on her shit on their shit like honestly i would have been so impressed if she came to run to his arms at the end of this movie and he sent her back (laughs) that's how much that wasn't working for me yeah, that would have been a, I think, a more interesting ending to the film. So right. it's not about its flaws, but I, I know why I, I like this movie a lot more than you do. But as you said, it was probably more for me than it was for you. Agreed. You better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men with a mission, and only 11 days. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. Our Lady of Blessed Acceleration, don't fail me now. For me and the Lord, we got an understanding. 
We're on a mission from God. Lots of space in this mall. How are you going to raise $5,000 in 11 days without ripping off somebody? Dance to Jailhouse Rock. Dance to Jailhouse Rock. Dance to Jailhouse Rock. Dance to Jailhouse Rock. I remain celibate for you. Black suits, black hats, one carrying a briefcase? Yeah. I just sent him down there. Thank you. John Belushi. You! How much for your wife? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. After the gig, uh, maybe we could, like, uh, hang out together. James Brown. I heard the sound in my car. Cab Calloway. Ray Charles. You, you know depreciation, man. Carrie Fisher. I must now kill you and your brother. Aretha Franklin. You're living with me now, and you're not gonna go sliding around with your old white woman friends. Henry Gibson. He better pray the police get to him before we do. And the Blues Brothers Band. Let's go, boys. The Blues Brothers. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. The Blues Brothers is undeniably a classic and it is directed, of course, by uh, the great John Landis, who has a very unique uh, filmography. A few years after that, after the Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London came out, which is a horror classic. In that fact, is his quintessential classic, if you ask me. Some people will say the Blues Brothers. I say American Werewolf in London, but that's pretty obvious coming from me, isn't it? But I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I like American Werewolf. 
Werewolf more than Blues Brothers, which might hurt some people's feelings. But it's interesting. Some of the same people show up. Frank Oz has a cameo in this. He has a Frank Oz has a cameo, and then and then some as far as his as his Muppet work in uh, in American Werewolf in London. But that shows the it's kind of an underrated filmmaker in some ways that you can make two movies that close together in very different genres, and and they are both considered classics. Plus, he had Animal House in his repertoire too. So yeah. um, people tend to be selective with Landis too. Like I like the guy, but he's made some terrible movies. <laughs> he's made some terrible movies. Innocent Blood is a terrible movie. Beverly Hills Cop 3, uh, well, I wouldn't even say it's terrible. I've seen it twice and I have no memory of it. It's like completely bland sauce. The Stupids, starring Tom Arnold, thank you for that. Oh. And the last movie he did, actually, Burke and Hare, was okay. Mm -hmm. And and by being okay, it was better than a lot of the movies he'd made in a few years. I, I just, I, I don't want to talk shit about Landis because I generally do consider myself a fan of his, but people tend to talk with such reverence about John Landis. <laughs> and, you know, he made some great movies and he's made some bad movies. He also made Into the Night, which is somewhere in between, but I'm just fascinated by it. <laughs> so. Yeah, you showed me that. It's an interesting one. Yeah, it is in between. It's, you yeah. know, it's not it's not great, but it's good. Not horrible, but it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Strange. It would be in the weird 80s, I think, would be a good place to put something, that, that movie. The Blues Brothers kind of came out of Saturday Night Live, and they're just this made-up brothers who, uh, who you know, would perform the blues and there's something kind of funny about them. I don't know if it's because it's Dan Aykroyd and uh, the late John Belushi playing uh, the roles um, of uh, of Jake and Elwood. This movie is just basically about Belushi gets out of prison and the brothers go to the orphanage where they grew up and they find out that it's uh, all these kids are going to be, you know, the orphanage is going to disappear unless they raise this money quickly and they go on this mission for God to raise money and then they get in all sorts of adventures around Chicago encountering all kinds of uh, famous blues performers and uh, strange characters and uh, neo-Nazis and Carrie Fisher Carrie Fisher Princess Leia herself is trying to assassinate Belushi all the stuff happens and then there's this really big and ridiculous climax and it's a lot of fun lots of energy to it great car chases fairly famous sequences but I've watched this movie several times and I just find so much of it forgettable I mean I know the Blues Brothers and I know there's good musical numbers in there quite a good one with James Brown playing uh, this reverend Aretha Franklin is this uh, working in a diner and she's kind of cursing them out and that kind of thing you can see all the production values that all the voice stuff was done in post-production some well choreographed sequences I suppose but it, it kind of leaves me empty and I don't know if I need to be going to see this movie in 1980 to be appreciating it but I know people who are much younger than I am that this is among their favorite movies of all time and I just can't quite explain it I this this one will have less points than maybe a lot of people think it deserves so it's interesting but it's it's just not fantastic for me I am suspecting that this movie much like its immediate predecessor Animal House is one of the those movies that 
is really defined by the time it came out in. I think the farther away you get from 1980, the less impactful, arguably, it should be to you. You're right, though. It's interesting because there's a lot of people that have big love for the Blues Brothers. You and I are about to hurt Lee Beckman's feelings really badly by talking shit about the Blues Brothers. Then talking shit is overstating it. But here's the thing. Um, uh, it's going to be lower on the list because I want you to get rid of it so I can have a new copy of the Blues Brothers. <laughs> uh, I couldn't find my copy of the Blues Brothers, and I fucking know that I have have a copy mm -hmm. of the Blues Brothers and it really made me irritated. It's probably one of those things like I had a bunch of people over and someone said they hadn't seen it so I lent it to them and then forgot completely about it. Mm -hmm. This is something that can happen when you have literally a few thousand movies in your house. Um, yeah. And like I have warm feelings about the movie but I had to get my hands on another copy of it to watch it and not for nothing I I, I watched a the extended cut of it online. Okay. Which drags. It drags. And I, 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 I assume it's the extended cut. I hope it's the extended cut yeah. because because I've never been so impatient or so unplugged from the Blues Brothers ever before. There were scenes that really just sat there. There were scenes that didn't and things that I like because I, I don't want them to come off super negative. I always like overcorrect in these reviews. Uh, we get to see John Candy again. I love yep. to see John Candy. Once again, he works completely for me. Warm presence in the movie. There's a lot of good bits, but each individual bit seems to take a little bit longer than it, 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 it should. Really, I think people have this idea of their head, the really cool opening with uh, him being released from jail and the setup for the movie and the really crazy car accident and this sort of idea of the, and there's some musical numbers. Yeah. It's two hours and 10 minutes long, something like this. I think the director's two and a half hours. Or something like that. I, I couldn't believe how long it was when I was watching it. And, and like, it was like I had this memory of the Blues Brothers and I had this experience of watching it again. And it's no, maybe just one of those things that just doesn't benefit on being revisited. I don't think Animal House sucks either, but I think that every year that goes by, it's just, it, it's not as edgy. When that movie came out, it was crazy and edgy. I mean, going back to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it's a, sort of the same idea. Yeah. When it came out, people were like, wow, they're really going places with the teen sort of subject matter. Here's another thing, and I keep on going to the social justice warrior thing, but mm -hmm. what is the comic conceit about the Blues Brothers if not it's funny that two white guys are singing the blues? That must be it. It, it, it is a total mystery to me of the early years of Saturday Night Live why kind of the, the first big movie to come out of Saturday Night Live. And there have been some pretty god-awful Saturday Night Live movies, to be fair, and this is not god-awful. But what was it from those early years that the Blues Brothers was kind of the one that, that came out? They, they would kind of perform as musical guests. The impression I got is when they didn't couldn't book a musical guest, they would have the Blues Brothers perform as filler for their hour and a half in the early years when they didn't know what they were doing. But and even part of their age shtick, they talk a little bit like an old traditional traditionally black blues singer would sing would speak do you know what i mean like it's not it doesn't it doesn't make me uncomfortable i mean this is something that actually happens like people borrow from different cultures and, and create their own music and that's fine but rock music is a perfect example of it i mean absolutely like it's, it's not that okay. a white guy is not allowed to sing the blues but i was just wondering is is that what was funny about them i i i, I i'm tr having trouble trying to figure out what's funny about there's colorful characters that we see and and great faces and I'm happy to see all of these people, happy to see Ray Charles. But like in the end of the day, like what what was I, if you love the musical numbers, you love the music. I I, I know people that watch this over and over and, and they sing the soundtrack. Like that's different than a movie to me. That, that's, it's kind of like those sing-alongs to Grease or The Sound of Music or that, that kind of thing. I guess it has that kind of a following. But if you're not getting that kind of uh, joy out of it, 
unfortunately, I, I and there's nothing wrong with the soundtrack. I love all of them all. there at all. And I have no complaints. I'm not dancing. I'm not singing along to it. I'm interested in the story, and the story stops every time we have a 10 to 15 minute long musical number. And and, and so that's where I'm a little bit stuck on this one. I think a lot of people will talk about how great John Belushi. This is one of his great roles. This in Animal House. I actually like Aykroyd a bit better. I love Aykroyd's deadpan quality. Like everything is serious that they're doing, and he he believes the circumstances, no matter how ridiculous, in in every moment. Whereas Belushi seems like he's playing the funny. He's playing. Uh, look at this. Like we're he's supposed playing to the ridiculous, and Aykroyd's playing the cool. And you're right. It's interesting to see Aykroyd playing cool because he doesn't do that anywhere else in his career. Usually he's weak or nerdy or nebbish or in some way flawed. Uh, in this movie, he, he comes off as the guy with the shit together and, and very cool and smooth. He tried that a lot in his earlier careers, like there was a Dr. Detroit movie and a little bit in the Dragnet movie from this yeah. sort of straight man things that seemed less comfortable to fit him, but was still interesting to see nonetheless. I'm an Aykroyd defender and everything not to do with nothing but trouble. So like, I don't like to talk crap about him. Mm-hmm. And I do think, I mean, it's it's not fair to put any hurt on this movie, but it needs to be said that this movie has one of the worst sequels in history. Blues Brothers like, 2000. And it had it, Goodman in it. And like as you said, Goodman is gold usually. And It's disrespectfully bad, I think. Yeah. Um, and that might contribute to hurting the legacy of the Blues Brothers itself. It's, it's, it's fine. It's okay. I get why people liked it. It feels like an old-fashioned entertainment. It's less about getting to the next gag or the next scene, but like here's a big musical number. And here's a big car chase. And here's a celebrity cameo. And this is all going to add up to being a movie somehow. And and I get like people liked it and it was really now and hip when it came out. It was like even edgy. Mm-hmm. And again in 2020 it's interesting but I honestly, I'm amazed that it still has the legacy that it does because yeah. it feels to me like if you weren't like alive when this movie came out, that it would be strangely fun to you. And other than things like seeing Carrie Fisher, which does give me a pang still to yeah. this day, I'm waiting for the time where I can see Carrie Fisher in a film and not just instantly get sad. She'll, <laughs> she'll be like Candy. I mean, like you're saying, 1984, John Candy died, and we we're still feeling it. Those who yeah. grew up with him, and I think Carrie Fisher has that kind of uh, appeal. And we see both of them in this movie, and I think you know, it's yeah, you just automatically go to you know how tragic their early deaths are. You know, like I go back to like just comedy generally doesn't age as well like it just doesn't uh and i think in the 80s generally speaking movies were taking their time more than we're used to today so they didn't feel that pressure of having a gag a minute or pushing the plot like now like even me as a director nowadays if i was making a comedy and we had a scene that didn't push plot or make people laugh or ideally both then it has no business in the movie right this movie is full of superfluousness and if you're enjoying that you can take a bath in that superfluousness and again maybe it's the climate of 2020 but i was shocked at how little i laugh while I watched the Blues Brothers this time. I am saying this with no joy, but it's mm-hmm. just a fact. I wouldn't give it a thumbs down review. I would give it an is what it is review. Do you like the Blues Brothers as a concept? Did you laugh at their musical numbers on Saturday Night Live? Well, here's two and a half hours of it. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think maybe it is what it is. Maybe it needs to be a party movie. Maybe it's this memory that everybody has of watching it in their college dorm with a bunch of friends drinking beer and smoking weed. And oh yeah, the Blues Brothers was hilarious. And maybe everyone just needs to 
stick with that memory. Much like Animal House. Much like Animal exactly. House. Same yeah. thing. Same. Among college students, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad to hear this because I, I was I was afraid that we would be in different places with this one. It's interesting though to me that like a lot of people know the Blues Brothers. I don't think a lot of people know the Coen Brothers, but they don't automatically think of Raising Arizona, right? They've made Raising a lot Arizona. of movies. <laughs> what are you going to do? Raising Arizona is a much better film. Much, much it better film. Is. It should have the legacy that the Blues Brothers has, in my biased opinion. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. This is the loudest. Rock and roll! Rock and roll! Most explosive band in heavy metal history. This is Spinal Tap. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever. The funniest movie ever made about rock and roll. He choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. The monumental classic. There was a Stone Age monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. The makeup of your audience seems to be young boys. Oh, it's a sexual thing, really. We've got, you know, armadillos in our trousers. I mean, it's really quite frightening. No, don't have I was it. just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point. I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. The cult phenomenon. The numbers all go to 11. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. This is Spinal Tap. It, it may shock you to realize that this was my first time watching This Is Spinal Tap for this show. Even really? Though, yeah, it is. Uh, it's been around for a long time. I'm a fan of Rob Reiner. I'm a fan of mockumentaries, improvised comedy, uh, Christopher Guest, and I'm a big fan of his movies like Waiting for Guffman and uh, Best in Show, movies like that. Maybe because I don't have the history that some people have with This Is Spinal Tap, it didn't really work for me. My favorite parts were spot uh, different comedians that would show up in cameo appearances like Billy Crystal or Fran Drescher or, or people like that. Just another one where there's these great comedic uh, musical sequences and some of them were, were, were quite funny but other times, you know, uh, there's a lot to get out of the lyrics from the songs and, and that but sometimes a movie would stop for me a little bit on that front. I, I think they, they did a, a great job of kind of researching the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and then very much the, the band of the 1980s, which I don't claim to be an expert in, but uh, particularly those those British bands that were starting to see like the end of their heyday and trying to keep their careers together. So there are moments that are funny, but I found myself smiling a bit, but I wasn't laughing out loud as much as I do with the Christopher Guest directed mockumentaries for some reason. And maybe I don't know any given day or whatever. This is Final Tap just didn't work for me as well as these other movies did. And I think you're a fan of this movie. I mean, Rob Reiner for a while there was like on on pace to be like the new Spielberg as far as I'm concerned. In the 80s, with the exception of maybe The Sure Thing, which there's nothing wrong with the movie, it's just not amazing. I think This Is Spinal Tap was breaking down some real new territory when it came out. The whole mockumentary approach wasn't completely new, but it was pretty novel for a mainstream movie. And the taking the piss out of Harry metal which was very popular out of the time just the the 
smug pretentiousness of it and the sexism of it. That yeah. that album cover, Smell the Glove, is equally terrible and hilarious. Like, I, I just think it was so on the nose that people sometimes almost miss the satire. But my guess, my advice to you, I mean, I don't mean to sound condescending, Jason, was to be, would be to give it some time and, and think- watch it again. Because I think it's one of these things where the humor in it is so dry that it's almost a fire hazard. <laughs> like uh, the Christopher Guest sort of took this ball and ran with it like 10, 15 years later when he did uh, Waiting for Guffman and his whole series of, of faux documentary comedies. And a lot of people feel that same way about Christopher Guest movies. That if you don't acclimatize to the vibe of the movie, it really, it exists on this vibe. So if you don't, if it doesn't resonate with you, then the whole movie, I guess, is not going to resonate with you. Yeah. And, and if it miscues, it miscues. To me, it did not miscue, but like uh, I was a fan of like as much as it's embarrassing to say the old hair metal bands of the 80s I did not fall for New Kids on the Block or Millie Vanilli or any of that shit I was into like you know Motley Crue and Def Leppard and and guys dressing as gals <laughs> weirdly vampish big hair explosion arena rock of the 80s I mean in my defense of the music that was around at the time this was one of the better choices I could have made <laughs> but still yeah. uh, this movie is taking really hard salient hits at that with a cast that is both very capable comedically and musically they did write and perform all of these songs they did create a whole history and it's not just that all the songs are funny but they have their 60s love child song and then they have their 70s metal song and then they have their 80s commercial song like they they're they're constantly sort of making reference to all the various ways these hard-edged metal bands are complete product and complete sellouts and mm-hmm. somehow have the audacity to not be aware of it. Like they always, you know, punch up with these movies. Like the, the the lowest bar that they hit, I think is probably the mascots one. Like when you're making fun of people who dress up as mascots, you're kind of aiming a little low, but you know, these guys are like rock gods, or at least they consider themselves rock gods. And they are all of them buffoons. <laughs> and they are like just a quarter as talented as they think they are. They're so much more lucky than they are. <laughs> anything else and the movie kind of doesn't give you a lot of scenes where they go eh eh see what we're doing here they just wryly present it and expect you to catch the vibe i think that much the way that reiner played with tone in in the princess bride where he was like he doesn't want to show all the secrets but he wants to like make you think he will like he's like coming as close to showing you his hand as he can without showing you his hand and that worked perfectly in the princess bride but this is a weird trial run at it it has a similar vibe and it's a strange comparison but it's true um because it's also a mockumentary i guess uh, of what we do in the shadows yeah. that taika waititi uh vampire movie it's got a very specific note that it's ringing and if it resonates for you the entire 80 minutes will be hilarious <laughs> If it doesn't, I still think you'll you'll have some fun with it, but you'll largely just look at it with a strange look on your face, like, what is this strange piece of cinema that I am looking at? And I think when this first came out especially, the crowd was split into two. The people who thought it was absolutely hilarious and, and connected with it, and the people that thought, well, I don't think it's as funny as everyone else does, but this is different. They've made a, a, a major feature comedy that's unlike any other major feature comedy that's come out in recent memory. And it's I think it works as satire. And for me, it's one of those movies that... that, that rewards i find new jokes in it when i revisit it later on if you get the dvd spinal tap does commentary in character and it's worth your time yeah 
I just like the world that they created and how much time they put into building This Is Spinal Tap to the point that they did become a legit band that can occasionally still releases albums and performs live. Mm -hmm. Like they created a band and then it manifested in reality. Yeah. For this and other reasons, I just think it, connected to it or not, it's an important, significant cultural event of a movie. And uh, it's another of the many capital C classics, as far as I'm concerned, that Rob Reiner produced. So I guess we're in a different place on this is Final yeah, Tap. But, but here, here's where I'm at with this, because I, I and I, I thought we would be in different places on this one. I, I was almost disappointed in myself, and maybe I built the movie up too much in my head, because I just had, had not seen it, and I know it's a classic, and I know it started basically a sub a subgenre of comedy, which I really admire, and I, I love Rob Reiner, and so I think maybe I was looking for something that it isn't, and maybe it's kind of like what I said about Oh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? My first reaction was this, but then when I give it a bit of time and I watch it again, I'm just give a different appreciation of it, and that's what I'm hoping because I feel like history has proved that I'm wrong in this review. Not to if put my down, but if you don't but, connect to it, you don't connect to it. I don't want to you into liking this movie i am kind of surprised i do think like just on a basic funny this one goes to 11 i i, I just think the movie is legitimately on its face funny um but there is that weird because it's a, it's an american movie that is sort of using a kind of british dryness mm -hmm. so it, it, it's it's not flailing for laughs the way you expect it to and the way more modern ones they did a a, a wannabe version of this with the pop star the same guys yeah. yeah, but it, it's trying to make fun of the boy band sort of aesthetic in a similar This Is Spinal Tap way. But there was something a little bit more desperate about the jokes that they were doing in that movie. I think like it's worth watching Popstar too. I'm not talking shit about it, but that movie wouldn't exist without This Is Spinal Tap. And frankly, a lot of movies wouldn't exist without This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, like So because it's influential and because a lot of people like it, does that mean you have to? No, but I mean, it does add weight to my side of the field. Here's my other kind of, kind of reverse comparison you said with Bull Durham because you didn't have a lot of interest in baseball and Costner all that that maybe that movie wasn't made for you yeah. I, I was aware of but I, I was maybe just a touch too young to be into the like the hair metal bands at yeah. that time and and so I didn't connect to that world and I, maybe I never have connected completely to that world as much as some other genres of music and or, or times in music and so maybe you know it wasn't necessarily designed for me but I feel like the film fan and the comedy fan in me should be able to cling to enough with this film and maybe it's just one of those ones I need to watch it a few times and and I'll, I'll start to be uh, 10 years from now we'll re review it and I'll I might be in, a, in quite a different place with this one so I have controversial opinions too there's plenty of movies that are like Oscar bait people love that just didn't didn't connect for me at all uh, again I I don't fold to that sort of perspective that just because it's a quote-unquote important film or just because it's a quote-unquote well-loved film that it has yeah. to work for you. I think there has to be a few of us out there that are willing to say that the English patient is impossibly overrated. <laughs> you know, there's like, there That's are you know, different Fargo. opinions. What's that? Especially when it beats Fargo for best picture. Exactly. I'm still bitter about that, still bitter about that for years. I, I know that that's personal because of the Coen brothers, but I'm never not going to be pissed off about it. <laughs> so. It's not that movie's fault. That, 
that people voted for it or whatever, but yeah. Just gonna go to my notes for a little bit here, just just so I feel like I'm kind of in a different place. So as I said, you know, there's there's a young Dana Carvey in there. I'm I'm a Dana Carvey fan. You know, he hasn't done a whole lot uh, for the last 20 years, but he was one of my favorite Saturday Night Live folks. Bruno Kirby, who was a um, late great actor, he makes. Yeah there is a limo driver uh paul schaefer uh most known from the david letterman uh show is in there and quite a different image than he normally projects in uh some of uh some of his stuff later on angelica houston for god's good sake is in this movie i mean there's a lot of fun in that in spotting uh spotting the names some of them became bigger later on that kind of thing i think the musical numbers are great kind of there's that elvis graveside scene there's a lot of 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 fun things i had listed here especially if you've done any time i i'm not a musician obviously but i've done my time on stage and i've 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 played in a lot of different venues. There's a sequence where they're trying to get from their their uh, waiting room to the stage. That's my favorite moment in the film. Right? And they can't find the stage. It's just this labyrinth of corridors that are just everyone's the same, and they're just walking around in circles. And it is funny, but for me, it's actually completely relatable. If you don't work in certain event places, if you take a wrong turn, you are fucking lost. And it can be stressful yeah. if you got a cue you need to make on stage. I- I love that the the gentleman who's uh, I, I don't know if he's he's the working. They, they go in the they go in the circle uh, and then they see him again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is that is honestly my favorite sequence. I know some other people would have have some some sequences which they'd like more. I, I guess you know it's a little bit episodic as far it's as definitely uh, episodic. Yeah, so these things happen from point to point to point. There's a little bit of conflict when the band breaks up and they have a, a Yoko Ono type of a figure in there and there's a bit of a uh, crisis which comes together in kind of a predictable way. I also think, you know, I, again, not to get too 2020 on this movie, I, I'm not sure about the dancing dwarves now, how that sits with the uh, with, with audiences. In combination with Stonehenge, though. By yeah. themselves, I would agree with you, but in combination with the little Stonehenge... Yeah. <laughs> like, like they're supposed to have a giant Stonehenge with these little guys dancing, uh, but before it, and they end up with a tiny Stonehenge with these big, I guess, by contrast, big guys dancing around, and, and it's ridiculous. I don't think they're making fun of the little people. I think they're making fun of how ridiculous the whole conceit was and how catastrophically it failed. Yeah, I, it's fair enough. Take the, the problematic era out of it, though. I think one of the things that I really connect to about the movie is that despite the absurdity of it all but the most ridiculous moments could almost be credible like if someone had told you that spinal tap was a real band and this was a legit behind the scenes thing that was filmed about them in the mid 80s if you didn't recognize all the celebrities you could almost believe it and that while they managed to do that and as far as i'm concerned still make a funny movie like well done this was also rob reiner's first movie it's very impressive i I think the other thing that it could have been the comedy Blair Witch project in some ways right. like if they had marketed it like the Blair Witch and and there weren't recognizable faces Rob Reiner would be recognizable because of his own family and but he's trying to become a director and he makes this documentary on this band and the, the others kind of disappear into their characters uh, well enough I'm a little bit mixed on some of the actors I mean um, but yeah I, I try not to let that get and it, I think I don't know I don't know what it is about Michael McKean right yeah I, I just I, I have trouble getting behind him. Like every time I see him in something, oh really? Like 
has had a great career and he is, I guess, a funny guy, but I, I just don't like him as much as like Harry Shearer, I think actually kind of steals the movie, to be honest. I think um, Michael McKean's sort of like an actor more than a quote comedian. And he's probably the, one of the more accomplished musicians of the group. He, he might carry less of the baggage as far as the humor. Christopher Guest's role is kind of like one that you could easily dismiss too, because he's playing the dumb guy and it's kind of quote easy to play the dumb guy. But at this point, we hadn't seen the full breadth and width of, of Christopher Guest's career. Not just what a crazy chameleon he is from role to role, but how like he's got a rich variety of not so bright or, or sort of self-deluded characters. And this was only just the very of them. Like, if you saw this role by itself, you could maybe shrug it off as Christopher Guest is, well, I guess he did the job. But taking in the breadth of the, like, all the performances that he's completely vanished into, look at the character he plays in this movie and compare it to the character he plays in Best in Show. And they're just different universes. They're both comic performances, but there's nothing else in common. <laughs> so I'm, well, I'm just the impressed. Princess the Princess Bride a few years later. Exactly. Completely yeah. different look, completely different character. Yeah, so I, I think we're in different places. I, I want people to sort of understand this is where I'm at with it on this particular day in the year 2020. But I I do plan to revisit it because I, I know that I am missing something because this is an important film. And I, I, I really do like every almost everybody involved and i liked the subgenre of comedy so i i was surprised that i didn't respond to it as much as i thought i was going to comedy ages strangely i will defend to the death blazing saddle when yeah. when it came out you know what one of the big scenes of the whole movie was a bunch of cowboys farting yeah that was the big thing that there was farting in that movie and that was hilarious and edgy the fact that they were making all of these crass satirical statements about race was overshadowed by the farting. When you watch that movie now, you feel like this couldn't get made today, and the farting is the least controversial and least funny thing about the movie. Anything that, once you're getting to 30, 40 years old, yeah, I mean, it is a classic comedy movie, but it's not going to have you holding your guts and sore from laughter after you watch it. It's more of a smile and a giggle. Than well, like how intelligent this is, as opposed to a more emotional, like, like again, I keep going back to Vacation, where I am every time I see it there's, I know everything that's going to happen in vacation I know every line of dialogue but I still find myself finding something funny something to laugh about it's kind of like Lebowski in some ways where there's always something no matter how many times you see it that you can cling to and so and yeah I if you're in a weird mood give it another day in court like well, give it some time I mean and if it doesn't work for you it doesn't work for you again maybe this is your bull Durham of the bunch it just wasn't for you but yeah. um, I will defend it I will defend it I think it's going to rank considerably higher for me than it will for you. Well, I think Normie will understand when he sees the note we pin on Edna's sleeve. Sure, Clark. He left his dead mother tied to a lawn chair in his backyard. I'm sure he won't mind. Look, it's all over and done with. We'll find a place to stay for the night and we'll start fresh in the morning. It's fine. I don't want to be in the car anymore. I want to go home. I don't want to go to Wally World. Clark, under the circumstances, I wouldn't mind if we just went home. In retrospect, it seems like a pretty bad idea driving out. It's been one disaster after another. Yeah, it's been a real drag, Dad. Maybe we can try it some other time. Wally World's overrated anyway. What do you think? I think you're all fucked in the head. We're 10 hours from the fucking fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. 
It's a quest for fun. I'm gonna have fun, and you're gonna have fun. We're all gonna have so much fucking fun when we need plastic surgery to remove our goddamn smiles. You'll be whistling symphony doodah out of your assholes. <laughs> I gotta be crazy. I'm on a pilgrimage to see a moose. Praise Marty Moose. Holy shit. Now it's time to figure out which three of these six movies are, are leaving my movie shelf here. So looking at the points here, first movie we reviewed, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm absolutely giving six points to. Four to, okay. National Lampoon's Vacation. National Lampoon's Vacation is getting eight points. And Bull Durham. Bull Durham is not going to be well represented. It's only getting two points. Ouch. Sorry. Uh, Raising Arizona. How many points is the Coen Brothers movie Raising Arizona going to get? Well, once again, having the Coens in your podcast has skewed the numbers. The Raising Arizona gets 27 points. Yeah. Just an amazing movie. It will always be an amazing movie. I agree with you on that. Uh, Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers is only getting five points, unfortunately. Okay, so Mr. Beckman probably won't be happy with either. Uh, I'm going to hear about it from him. And uh, this is Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap. Has 12 points. Okay, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We're, we're in similar places. I gave it a few more points i gave it eight points national okay. vacation i i told you is my favorite probably for sentimental reasons i gave it 15 points boulder um uh i like a lot more than you do i gave it 13 points i also gave raising arizona 13 points uh the blues oh, first uh i gave one more point than you did six points and final tap unfortunately where i'm at right now i gave only five points to it wow yeah, we're in different places but hopefully we're going to part as, as friends on this one the movie that had the most points clearly raising arizona with 40 points the next closest was vacation with 23 and then this is spinal tap ended up with uh 17 points the movies that have to leave my collection are fourth places bull durham with 15 points fifth places fast times at ridgemont high with 14 points and with 11 points the blues brothers actually had the lowest score ouch Ouch. Yeah. Fast Times, Bull Durham, and the Blues Brothers. What should I do with those movies? I will take the Blues Brothers off your hands. As unkind as I was, my copy went missing. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, I mean, I, I will I, I, I will hope that, like, the right day will come or the right atmosphere will come, and I will like the Blues Brothers as much as I did when I was 15 again but uh if you're willing to let me the, i will i will happily take that off your hand oh, yeah and post-covid times maybe it will again kind of like, like i've been harder on the movies because i've been harder to make laugh i yeah. honestly do uh the other two what would you like me to do with fast um, times your fast times is it dvd or blu-ray dvd yeah so we have the same copy of fast times it is not high fast times and like i don't have bull durham but honestly i just don't know what kind of rewatch i would get it out of my collection so i have to tell you what to do with them like do you have to give them to somebody or give them to goodwill yeah. or, them or which, do something with them yeah put them on a fire and dance around it i <laughs> I would, you, you teach high school. Oh no, you can't. I was going to say you could give fast time to uh, a, a favored high school student, but A, high school students don't watch DVDs and B, considering the content, someone might find that incredibly inappropriate. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that you could give like a, one of your students a, a really intelligent, funny look at what, what it is to be a teenager and it would be considered incredibly inappropriate? 
<laughs> I, I wonder if we could adapt that I if I give it to one of my former high school students. There you go. Older, we could we could do that, and I'll, I'll find, find a home for them appreciated in. So if yeah. there's someone you know who loves baseball, you can give them Bull Durham. And okay. yeah, if there's a student or someone who it would be appropriate to give an R-rated movie to, yeah. I mean, as much as I wasn't saying is enthusiastic things necessarily about either of those movies, I I, I don't dislike them. I don't think they're 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 bad movies. I think they deserve to have their audience and give them to somebody who watched the movie. How's that for a condition? Sounds good. One more thing. I've made this kind of, but it is the 20th episode, so I'm making this into maybe a little bit more of an epic episode than, than some other ones, if that's okay. Okay. In celebration of Rank and Review, which I want to promote to everybody, you have to check out the old shows and the new shows, and the new season's coming up here. And by the time this lands, we'll probably you'll probably have two or three episodes that have dropped. I, I want to do something that you do on your show called the Jerry's. Not every oh, show. Okay. Yeah. And I think it is, is Jerry's, is it Jeremy and Larry together? Is that how you came up with the name or? The first time I ever did, the first episode I ever did was with my friend Jeremy Cook and we were going to give out rewards. And at the time I didn't have a name for them, but because he was there, I just <laughs> called them the Jerry's. Jerry. And for whatever reason it stuck. But uh, we have, we very rarely do the Jerry's anymore because yeah. I end up running long so often that uh it's a rarer thing. And I'm running it's long on this one. Old school but rank and review. For the, yeah. The, yeah, old school. Celebrate old school rank and review. And those are the ones I'm listening to right now, I guess. And I, I'm prepared for this one to be maybe our longest show uh, so far. So that's that's fine. I, I prepared some categories kind of in a hurry. So I, I'm going to let you choose the winners. I'll mention the nominees. I'll also open it up that if there is a something I haven't nominated that you would give the award to, you can mention that. I have that's veto power. You have the veto power to come up with something else. So first category I have is funniest okay. moment. So I have the kidnapping sequence in Raising Arizona. I have the diaper run in Raising Arizona. I have the classroom scenes in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I have Clark Griswold completely losing it on his family after a whole series of calamities, which for some reason as a kid made me pee my, my pants because it was just so funny to me. And that's why I'm nominating it. And the tiny stone hand sequence in this is final tap uh, of the ones you've listed i would give it handily and again i'm biased to the the diaper car chase sequence in raising arizona i think it takes all the boxes for me as far as character beats action beats and just being funny and i've always loved that soundtrack that weird yodeling soundtrack that's going on seems like not the obvious choice for what they're filming but it's just somehow perfect but if i can give an honorable mention to do another callback to that scene in vacation where everybody falls asleep in the car yeah that has always been just gold to me i don't know why i will never not find that <laughs> uh, best performance. I had several nominees: Sean Penn in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Chevy Chase in Vacation, Beverly D'Angelo as well in Vacation, Nicholas Cage in Raising Arizona, Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona, Susan Sarandon in Bull Durham, and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in in Blues Brothers. This is a controversial pick, but I'm going to do it because I do think he's straight up funny in the in the movie. 
I, I, I don't like the guy. I probably would never want to meet the guy, but I can't take it away from him, especially in the 1980s. Chevy Chase yeah. was a good comedic anchor for your movie, and he holds that movie together. It's full of talented people, but I would give it to him. So Chevy Chase. So you have WTF. Probably I, I'm a little bit more hesitant to put the F in. I don't know if it's because I'm a public school teacher or whatever, but I'm going to call it WTH, what the heck uh, category. <laughs> Gosh darn it, let's do it. The morgue visit secret in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the neo-Nazis in the Blues Brothers and their whole arc, kind of strange. Randall Cobb's entire role in Raising Arizona. The Swinger Couple featuring Francis McDormand in Raising Arizona. The incest reference, which you talked about in Vacation. And finally, mimes who are serving uh, drinks at uh, that New York City music industry party and this is Spinal Tap. Those are all really strange WTF moments for Tap. One of them's Billy Crystal and one of them's Robin Williams apparently. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, um, what's the biggest W... I mean, I'm tempted to say Randall Tex Cobb but I feel like that it's a gimme because it's the it's the Coen brothers. His whole presence in that movie like he's like this Anton Chigurh figure in the middle of this like madcap like family comedy. Otherwise, he's this yeah. And that whole fight that he has with High at the end of the movie. I don't. I, I'm I'm leaning heavily on the Coen Brothers because of who I am as a person. So I'm gonna give yeah. it to Randall Tex Cobb. Plus, he's Canadian. Damn it. Yeah, great choice. And then this is a little bit different than Best Picture among the six, but. Which one would you say is the most 80s of these comedies? They're they're pretty good at not being overly dated by the aesthetic of the 80s, considering like you could have picked a lot harder numbers. I think I'll give it Fast Times at Ridgemont High uh, as yeah. being the most 80s, although it's sort of lingering leftover 70s too. It's sort of late 70s, early 80s. But um, at, like I'd say, at the time when, we were, when it was coming out, it was very edgy. And nowadays it seems very familiar. But graded on the curve of when it came out, yeah, that's probably the most 80s of the ones that we've looked at. I think that really Spinal Tap and Blues Brothers have aged pretty well considering yeah. like the time frame. And Bull Durham as well. As much as I said a lot of mean things about Bull Durham, it's aged well. It's not as dated. as. Uh, thanks again, Larry, for doing this. Please, everybody, check out Rank and Review. Just to conclude my show, uh, I also want to do a shout out to uh, Kurt Fitzpatrick's podcast uh, that he does with a couple of guys, A Lifetime of Hallmark, where he reviews Hallmark and Lifetime movies uh, one week. Uh, and uh, please check out my Facebook and listen to the podcast recommended to people on all the fine uh, services, including iTunes, where uh, you can get podcasts. And uh, still continue to be kind to each other and take care of each other during these COVID times and keep supporting the movies. Thanks again. <laughs>